This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Red One by Jack London. It's read by Oliver Wyman. The story runs one hour, three minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. The Red One by Jack London Read for you by Oliver Wyman There it was, the abrupt liberation of sound. As he timed it with his watch, Bassett likened it to the trump of an archangel. Walls of cities, he meditated, might well fall down before so vast and compelling a summons. For the thousandth time, vainly, he tried to analyze the tone quality of that enormous peal that dominated the land far into the strongholds of the surrounding tribes. The mountain gorge which was its source rang to the rising tide of it until it brimmed over and flooded earth and sky and air. With the wantonness of a sick man's fancy, he likened it to the mighty cry of some titan of the elder world, vexed with misery or wrath. Higher and higher it arose, challenging and demanding in such profounds of volume that it seemed intended for ears beyond the narrow confines of the solar system. There was in it, too, the clamor of protest, in that there were no ears to hear and comprehend its utterance. Such the sick man's fancy. Still he strove to analyze the sound. Sonorous as thunder was it, mellow as a golden bell, thin and sweet as a thrummed taut cord of silver. No, it was none of these, nor a blend of these. There were no words nor semblances in his vocabulary and experience with which to describe the totality of that sound. Time passed. Minutes merged into quarters of hours, and quarters of hours into half-hours, and still the sound persisted, ever changing from its initial vocal impulse, yet never receiving fresh impulse, fading, dimming, dying as enormously as it had sprung into being. It became a confusion of troubled mutterings and babblings and colossal whisperings. Slowly it withdrew, sob by sob, into whatever great bosom had birthed it, until it whimpered deadly whispers of wrath and as equally seductive whispers of delight, striving still to be heard, to convey some cosmic secret, some understanding of infinite import and value. It dwindled to a ghost of sound that had lost its menace and promise and became a thing that pulsed on in the sick man's consciousness for minutes after it ceased. When he could hear it no longer, Bassett glanced at his watch— an hour had elapsed ere that archangel's trump had subsided into tonal nothingness. Was this, then, his dark tower? Bassett pondered, remembering his browning and gazing at his skeleton-like and fever-wasted hands. And the fancy made him smile. Of child Roland bearing a slughorn to his lips with an arm as feeble as his was. Was it months or years, he asked himself, since he first heard that mysterious call on the beach at Ringmanu. To save himself he could not tell. The long sickness had been most long. In conscious count of time he knew of months, many of them, but he had no way of estimating the long intervals of delirium and stupor. And how fared Captain Bateman of the blackbirder Nari, he wondered. And had Captain Bateman's drunken mate died of delirium tremens yet? 
from which vain speculations Bassett turned idly to review all that had occurred since that day on the beach of Ringmanu when he first heard the sound and plunged into the jungle after it. Sagawa had protested. He could see him yet, his queer little monkeyish face eloquent with fear, his back burdened with specimen cases, in his hands Bassett's butterfly net and naturalist's shotgun, as he quavered in beche de mer English. Me fella too much fright along bush. Bad fella boy too much stop him along bush. Bassett smiled sadly at the recollection. The little new Hanover boy had been frightened, but had proved faithful, following him without hesitancy into the bush in the quest after the source of the wonderful sound. No fire-hollowed tree-trunk that, throbbing war through the jungle depths, had been Bassett's conclusion. Erroneous had been his next conclusion, namely that the source or cause could not be more distant than an hour's walk, and that he would easily be back by mid-afternoon to be picked up by the Nari's whaleboat. "'That big fella noise no good. All the same devil-devil,' Sagawa had adjudged, and Sagawa had been right." Had he not had his head hacked off within the day? Bassett shuddered. Without doubt, Sagawa had been eaten as well by the bad fella boys too much that stopped along the bush. He could see him as he had last seen him, stripped of the shotgun and all the naturalist's gear of his master, lying on the narrow trail where he had been decapitated barely the moment before. Yes, within a minute the thing had happened. Within a minute, looking back, Bassett had seen him trudging patiently along under his burdens. Then Bassett's own trouble had come upon him. He looked at the cruelly healed stumps of the first and second fingers of his left hand, then rubbed them softly into the indentation in the back of his skull. Quick as had been the flash of the long-handled tomahawk, he had been quick enough to duck away his head and partially to deflect the stroke with his upflung hand. Two fingers and a nasty scalp wound had been the price he paid for his life. With one barrel of his ten-gauge shotgun, he had blown the life out of the bushman who had so nearly got him. With the other barrel, he had peppered the bushman bending over Sagawa, and had the pleasure of knowing that the major portion of the charge had gone into the one who leaped away with Sagawa's head. Everything had occurred in a flash. Only himself, the slain bushman, and what remained of Sagawa were in the narrow wild-pig run of a path— from the dark jungle on either side came no rustle of movement or sound of life, and he had suffered distinct and dreadful shock. For the first time in his life he had killed a human being, and he knew nausea as he contemplated the mess of his handiwork. Then had begun the chase. He retreated up the pig run before his hunters, who were between him and the beach. How many there were he could not guess, for he saw aught of them. That some of them took to the trees and traveled along through the jungle roof, he was certain, but at the most he never glimpsed more than an occasional flitting of shadows. No bowstrings twanged that he could hear, but every little while, whence discharged he knew not, tiny arrows whispered past him or struck tree boles and fluttered to the ground beside him. They were bone-tipped and feather-shafted, and the feathers, torn from the breasts of hummingbirds, iridesced like jewels. Once, and now, after the long lapse of time, he chuckled gleefully at the recollection, he had detected a shadow above him that came to instant rest as he turned his gaze upward. He could make out nothing, but, deciding to chance it, had fired at it a heavy charge of number five shot, squalling like an infuriated cat 
The shadow crashed down through tree ferns and orchids and thudded upon the earth at his feet, and, still squalling its rage and pain, had sunk its human teeth into the ankle of his stout tramping boot. He, on the other hand, was not idle, and with his free foot had done what reduced the squalling to silence. So inured to savagery had Bassett since become that he chuckled again with the glee of the recollection. What a night had followed! Small wonder that he had accumulated such a virulence and variety of fevers, he thought, as he recalled that sleepless night of torment when the throb of his wounds was as nothing compared with the myriad stings of the mosquitoes. There had been no escaping them, and he had not dared to light a fire. They had literally pumped his body full of poison, so that with the coming of day, eyes swollen almost shut, he had stumbled blindly on not caring much when his head should be hacked off and his carcass started on the way of Sagawa's to the cooking fire. Twenty-four hours had made a wreck of him, of mind as well as body. He had scarcely retained his wits at all, so maddened was he by the tremendous inoculation of poison he had received. Several times he fired his shotgun with effect into the shadows that dogged him, Stinging day insects and gnats added to his torment, while his bloody wounds attracted hosts of loathsome flies that clung sluggishly to his flesh and had to be brushed off and crushed off. Once in that day he heard again the wonderful sound, seemingly more distant, but rising imperiously above the nearer war drums in the bush. Right there was where he had made his mistake." Thinking that he had passed beyond it, and that therefore it was between him and the beach of Ringmanu, he had worked back toward it, when in reality he was penetrating deeper and deeper into the mysterious heart of the unexplored island. That night, crawling in among the twisted roots of a banyan tree, he had slept from exhaustion, while the mosquitoes had had their will of him. Followed days and nights that were vague as nightmares in his memory— one clear vision, he remembered, was of suddenly finding himself in the midst of a bush village and watching the old men and children fleeing into the jungle. All had fled but one. From close at hand and above him, a whimpering as of some animal in pain and terror had startled him. And looking up, he had seen her, a girl, or young woman, rather, suspended by one arm in the cooking sun. Perhaps for days she had so hung— her swollen, protruding tongue spoke as much. Still alive, she gazed at him with eyes of terror. Past help, he decided, as he noted the swellings of her legs, which advertised that the joints had been crushed and the great bones broken. He resolved to shoot her, and there the vision terminated. He could not remember whether he had or not, any more than he could remember how he chanced to be in that village or how he succeeded in getting away from it. Many pictures, unrelated, came and went in Bassett's mind as he reviewed that period of his terrible wanderings. He remembered invading another village of a dozen houses and driving all before him with his shotgun, save for one old man, too feeble to flee, who spat at him and whined and snarled as he dug open a ground oven and from amid the hot stones dragged forth a roasted pig that steamed its essence deliciously through its green leaf wrappings. It was at this place that a wantonness of savagery had seized upon him. Having feasted, ready to depart with a hindquarter of the pig in his hand, he deliberately fired the grass thatch of a house with his burning glass. But seared deepest of all in Bassett's brain 
was the dank and noisome jungle. It actually stank with evil, and it was always twilight. Rarely did a shaft of sunlight penetrate its matted roof a hundred feet overhead, and beneath that roof was an aerial ooze of vegetation, a monstrous parasitic dripping of decadent life-forms that rooted in death and lived on death. And through all this he drifted, ever pursued by the flitting shadows of the anthropophagi, themselves ghosts of evil that dared not face him in battle, but that knew that, soon or late, they would feed on him. Bassett remembered that at the time, in lucid moments, he had likened himself to a wounded bull pursued by plains coyotes too cowardly to battle with him for the meat of him, yet certain of the inevitable end of him when they would be full-gorged. As the bull's horns and stamping hooves kept off the coyotes, so his shotgun kept off these Solomon Islanders, these twilight shades of bushmen of the island of Guadalcanal. Came the day of the grasslands. Abruptly, as if cloven by the sword of God in the hand of God, the jungle terminated. The edge of it, perpendicular and as black as the infamy of it, was a hundred feet up and down. And beginning at the edge of it grew the grass, sweet, soft, tender pasture grass that would have delighted the eyes and beasts of any husbandman, and that extended on and on for leagues and leagues of velvet verdure to the backbone of the great island, the towering mountain range flung up by some ancient earth cataclysm, serrated and gullied but not yet erased by the erosive tropic rains. But the grass! He had crawled into it a dozen yards, buried his face in it, smelled it, and broken down in a fit of involuntary weeping. And while he wept, the wonderful sound had pealed forth. If by peal, he had often thought since, an adequate description could be given of the enunciation of so vast a sound, so melting sweet. Sweet it was as no sound ever heard. Vast it was, of so mighty a resonance that it might have proceeded from some brazen-throated monster. And yet it called to him across that leagues-wide savannah, and was like a benediction to his long-suffering, pain-racked spirit." He remembered how he lay there in the grass, wet-cheeked, but no longer sobbing, listening to the sound and wondering that he had been able to hear it on the beach of Ringmanu. Some freak of air pressures and air currents, he reflected, had made it possible for the sound to carry so far. Such conditions might not happen again in a thousand days, or ten thousand days, but the one day it had happened had been the day he landed from the Nari for several hours collecting— Especially had he been in quest of the famed jungle butterfly, a foot across from wingtip to wingtip, as velvet dusky of lack of color as was the gloom of the roof, of such lofty arboreal habits that it resorted only to the jungle roof and could be brought down only by a dose of shot. It was for this purpose that Sagawa had carried the ten-gauge shotgun. Two days and nights he had spent crawling across that belt of grassland. He had suffered much but pursuit had ceased at the jungle edge, and he would have died of thirst had not a heavy thunderstorm revived him on the second day. And then had come Balata. In the first shade, where the savannah yielded to the dense mountain jungle, he had collapsed to die. At first she had squealed with delight at sight of his helplessness, and was for beating his brain out with a stout forest branch— Perhaps it was his very utter helplessness that had appealed to her, and perhaps it was her human curiosity that made her refrain. 
At any rate, she had refrained, for he opened his eyes again under the impending blow and saw her studying him intently. What especially struck her about him were his blue eyes and white skin. Coolly she had squatted on her hams, spat on his arm, and with her fingertips scrubbed away the dirt of days and nights of muck and jungle that sullied the pristine whiteness of his skin. And everything about her had struck him especially, although there was nothing conventional about her at all. He laughed weakly at the recollection, for she had been as innocent of garb as Eve before the fig-leaf adventure. Squat and lean at the same time, a symmetrically limbed, string-muscled as if with lengths of cordage, dirt-caked from infancy save for casual showers, she was as unbeautiful a prototype of woman as he, with a scientist's eye, had ever gazed upon. Her breasts advertised at the one time her maturity and youth. And, if by nothing else, her sex was advertised by the one article of finery with which she was adorned, namely a pig's tail, thrust through a hole in her left earlobe. So lately had the tail been severed that its raw end still oozed blood that dried upon her shoulder like so much candle droppings. And her face, a twisted and wizened complex of apish features, perforated by upturned, sky-open Mongolian nostrils, by a mouth that sagged from a huge upper lip and faded precipitately into a retreating chin and by peering, querulous eyes that blinked as blink the eyes of denizens of monkey cages. Not even the water she brought him in a forest leaf and the ancient and half-putrid chunk of roast pig could redeem in the slightest the grotesque hideousness of her. When he had eaten weakly for a space, he closed his eyes in order not to see her, although again and again she poked them open to peer at the blue of them. Then had come the sound— Nearer, much nearer, he knew it to be, and he knew equally well, despite the weary way he had come, that it was still many hours distant. The effect of it on her had been startling. She cringed under it, with averted face, moaning and chattering with fear. But after it had lived its full life of an hour, he closed his eyes and fell asleep with Balata brushing the flies from him. When he awoke it was night, and she was gone but he was aware of renewed strength, and, by then, too thoroughly inoculated by the mosquito poison to suffer further inflammation, he closed his eyes and slept an unbroken stretch till sunup. A little later Balata had returned, bringing with her a half-dozen women who, unbeautiful as they were, were patently not so unbeautiful as she. She evidenced by her conduct that she considered him her find, her property— and the pride she took in showing him off would have been ludicrous had his situation not been so desperate. Later, after what had been to him a terrible journey of miles, when he collapsed in front of the devil-devil house in the shadow of the breadfruit tree, she had shown very lively ideas on the matter of retaining possession of him. Nagurn, whom Bassett was to know afterward as the devil-devil doctor, priest, or medicine man of the village, had wanted his head. Others of the grinning and chattering monkey-men, all as stark of clothes and bestial of appearance as Balata, had wanted his body for the roasting oven. At that time he had not understood their language, if by language might be dignified the uncouth sounds they made to represent ideas. But Bassett had thoroughly understood the matter of debate, especially when the men pressed and prodded and felt the flesh of him as if he were so much commodity in a butcher's stall. 
Balata had been losing the debate rapidly when the accident happened. One of the men, curiously examining Bassett's shotgun, managed to cock and pull a trigger. The recoil of the butt into the pit of the man's stomach had not been the most sanguinary result, for the charge of shot, at a distance of a yard, had blown the head of one of the debaters into nothingness. Even Balata joined the others in flight, and, ere they returned, his senses already reeling from the oncoming fever attack, Bassett had regained possession of the gun. Whereupon, although his teeth chattered with the ague and his swimming eyes could scarcely see, he held on to his fading consciousness until he could intimidate the bushman with the simple magics of compass, watch, burning glass, and matches. At the last, with due emphasis of solemnity and awfulness, he had killed a young pig with his shotgun and promptly fainted. Bassett flexed his arm muscles in quest of what possible strength might reside in such weakness, and dragged himself slowly and totteringly to his feet. He was shockingly emaciated, yet during the various convalescences of the many months of his long sickness he had never regained quite the same degree of strength as this time. What he feared was another relapse, such as he had already frequently experienced— Without drugs, without even quinine, he had managed so far to live through a combination of the most pernicious and most malignant of malarial and blackwater fevers. But could he continue to endure? Such was his everlasting query. For, like the genuine scientist he was, he would not be content to die until he had solved the secret of the sound. Supported by a staff, he staggered the few steps to the devil-devil house where death and Nagurn reigned in gloom. Almost as infamously dark and evil-stinking as the jungle was the devil-devil house, in Bassett's opinion, yet therein was usually to be found his favorite crony and gossip, Nagurn, always willing for a yarn or discussion, the while he sat in the ashes of death, and in a slow smoke shrewdly revolved curing human heads suspended from the rafters. For, through the month's interval of consciousness and his long sickness, Bassett had mastered the psychological simplicities and lingual difficulties of the language of the tribe of Nagurn and Balata and Vengingen, the latter the addle-headed young chief who was ruled by Nagurn, and who, whispered intrigue had it, was the son of Nagurn. "'Will the Red One speak today?' Bassett asked. By this time so accustomed to the old man's gruesome occupation as to take even an interest in the progress of the smoke curing. With the eye of an expert, Nagurn examined the particular head he was at work upon. It will be ten days before I can say finish, he said. Never has any man fixed heads like these. Bassett smiled inwardly at the old fellow's reluctance to talk with him of the red one. It had always been so. Never by any chance had Nagurn or any other member of the weird tribe divulged the slightest hint of any physical characteristic of the Red One. Physical the Red One must be, to emit the wonderful sound, and though it was called the Red One, Bassett could not be sure that red represented the color of it. Red enough were the deeds and powers of it from what abstract clues he had gleaned. Not alone, had Nagurn informed him, was the Red One more bestial powerful than the neighbor tribal gods, ever athirst for the red blood of living human sacrifices, but the neighbor gods themselves were sacrificed and tormented before him. 
He was the guard of a dozen allied villages similar to this one, which was the central and commanding village of the Federation. By virtue of the Red One, many alien villages had been devastated and even wiped out, the prisoners sacrificed to the Red One. This was true today, and it extended back into old history carried down by word of mouth through the generations. When he, Nagurn, had been a young man, the tribes beyond the grasslands had made a war raid. In the counter-raid, Nagurn and his fighting folk had made many prisoners. Of children alone, over five score living had been bled white before the Red One, and many, many more men and women. The Thunderer was another of Nagurn's names for the mysterious deity. Also at times was he called the Loud Shouter, the God-Voiced, the Bird-Throated, the one with the throat sweet as the throat of the honeybird, the sun-singer, and the starborn. Why the starborn? In vain, Bassett interrogated Nagurn. According to that old devil-devil doctor, the red one had always been, just where he was at present, forever singing and thundering his will over men. But Nagurn's father, wrapped in decaying grass matting and hanging even then over their heads among the smoky rafters of the devil-devil house, had held otherwise. That departed wise one had believed that the red one came from out of the starry night. Else why, so his argument had run, had the old and forgotten ones passed his name down as the starborn? Bassett could not but recognize something cogent in such argument— but Nagurn affirmed the long years of his long life, wherein he had gazed upon many starry nights, yet never had he found a star on grassland or in jungle depth, and he had looked for them. True, he had beheld shooting stars, this in reply to Bassett's contention, but likewise had he beheld the phosphorescence of the fungoid growths and rotten meat and fireflies on dark nights, and the flames of wood fires and of blazing candle nuts. Yet what were flame and blaze and glow when they had flamed and blazed and glowed? Answer, memories, memories only, of things which had ceased to be, like memories of matings accomplished, of feasts forgotten, of desires that were the ghosts of desires, flaring, flaming, burning, yet unrealized in achievement of easement and satisfaction. Where was the appetite of yesterday? the roasted flesh of the wild pig the hunter's arrow failed to slay, the maid unwed and dead ere the young man knew her. A memory was not a star, was Nagurn's contention. How could a memory be a star? Further, after all his long life he still observed the starry night sky unaltered. Never had he noted the absence of a single star from its accustomed place. Besides, stars were fire— and the red one was not fire, which last involuntary betrayal told Bassett nothing. "'Will the red one speak tomorrow?' he queried. Nagurn shrugged his shoulders as who should say. "'And the day after? And the day after that?' Bassett persisted. "'I would like to have the curing of your head,' Nagurn changed the subject. "'It is different from any other head. No devil-devil has a head like it.' Besides, I would cure it well. I would take months and months. The moons would come and the moons would go, and the smoke would be very slow, and I should myself gather the materials for the curing smoke. The skin would not wrinkle. It would be as smooth as your skin now. He stood up, 
and from the dim rafters, grimed with the smoking of countless heads, where day was no more than a gloom, took down a matting-wrapped parcel and began to open it. "'It is a head like yours,' he said, "'but it is poorly cured.' Bassett had pricked up his ears at the suggestion that it was a white man's head, for he had long since come to accept that these jungle-dwellers, in the midmost center of the great island, had never had intercourse with white men. Certainly he had found them without the almost universal beche de mer English of the West-South Pacific, nor had they knowledge of tobacco nor of gunpowder. Their few precious knives, made from lengths of hoop iron, and their few and more precious tomahawks, made from cheap trade hatchets, he had surmised they had captured in war from the bushmen of the jungle beyond the grasslands, and that they, in turn, had similarly gained them from the saltwater men who fringed the coral beaches of the shore and had contact with the occasional white men. "'The folk in the out beyond do not know how to cure heads,' old Nagurn explained, as he drew forth from the filthy matting and placed in Bassett's hands an indubitable white man's head. Ancient it was beyond question,' White it was, as the blonde hair attested. He could have sworn it once belonged to an Englishman, and to an Englishman of long before, by token of the heavy gold circlets still threaded in the withered earlobes. Now your head, the devil-devil doctor began on his favorite topic. I'll tell you what, Bassett interrupted, struck by a new idea. When I die, I'll let you have my head to cure, if, first, you take me to look upon the red one. I will have your head anyway when you are dead. Nagurn rejected the proposition. He added, with the brutal frankness of the savage, Besides, you have not long to live. You are almost a dead man now. You will grow less strong. In not many months I shall have you here turning and turning in the smoke. It is pleasant through the long afternoons to turn the head of one you have known as well as I know you and I shall talk to you and tell you the many secrets you want to know, which will not matter, for you will be dead. Nagurn, Bassett threatened in sudden anger. You know the baby thunder in the iron that is mine. This was in reference to his all-potent and all-awful shotgun. I can kill you at any time, and then you will not get my head. Just the same will Vingingin or someone else of my folk get it, Nagurn complacently assured him, and just the same will it turn and turn here in the devil-devil house in the smoke. The quicker you slay me with your baby thunder, the quicker will your head turn in the smoke. And Bassett knew he was beaten in the discussion. What was the red one? Bassett asked himself a thousand times in the succeeding week while he seemed to grow stronger. What was the source of the wonderful sound? What was this sun-singer, this star-born one, this mysterious deity, as bestial-conducted as the black and kinky-headed and monkey-like human beasts who worshipped it, and whose silver-sweet, bull-mouthed singing and commanding he had heard at the taboo distance for so long? Nagurn had he failed to bribe with the inevitable curing of his head when he was dead. Vingingen, Imbecile and chief that he was, was too imbecilic, too much under the sway of Nagurn to be considered. Remained Balata, who, from the time she found him and poked his blue eyes open to recrudescence of her grotesque female hideousness, had continued his adorer. 
Woman she was, and he had long known that the only way to win from her treason of her tribe was through the woman's heart of her. Bassett was a fastidious man. He had never recovered from the initial horror caused by Balata's female awfulness. Back in England, even at best, the charm of woman to him had never been robust. Yet now, resolutely, as only a man can do who is capable of martyring himself for the cause of science, he proceeded to violate all the fineness and delicacy of his nature by making love to the unthinkably disgusting bushwoman. He shuddered, but with averted face hid his grimaces and swallowed his gorge as he put his arm around her dirt-crusted shoulders and felt the contact of her rancid, oily, and kinky hair with his neck and chin but he nearly screamed when she succumbed to that caress so at the very first of the courtship, and mowed and gibbered and squealed little queer, pig-like, gurgly noises of delight. It was too much. And the next he did in the singular courtship was to take her down to the stream and give her a vigorous scrubbing. From then on he devoted himself to her like a true swain, as frequently and for as long a time as his will could override his repugnance. But marriage, which she ardently suggested, with due observance of tribal custom, he balked at. Fortunately, taboo rule was strong in the tribe. Thus, Nagurn could never touch bone, or flesh, or hide of crocodile. This had been ordained at his birth. Vingingen was denied ever the touch of a woman. Such pollution, did it chance to occur, could be purged only by the death of the offending female— it had happened once, since Bassett's arrival, when a girl of nine, running in play, stumbled and fell against the sacred chief, and the girl-child was seen no more. In whispers, Balata told Bassett that she had been three days and nights in dying before the Red One. As for Balata, the breadfruit was taboo to her, for which Bassett was thankful. The taboo might have been water. For himself he fabricated a special taboo— only could he marry, he explained, when the Southern Cross rode highest in the sky. Knowing his astronomy, he thus gained a reprieve of nearly nine months, and he was confident that within that time he would either be dead or escape to the coast with full knowledge of the Red One and of the source of the Red One's wonderful voice. At first he had fancied the Red One to be some colossal statue, like Memnon, rendered vocal under certain temperature conditions of sunlight— but when, after a war raid, a batch of prisoners was brought in and the sacrifice made at night, in the midst of rain, when the sun could play no part, the Red One had been more vocal than usual, Bassett discarded that hypothesis. In company with Balata, sometimes with men and parties of women, the freedom of the jungle was his for three quadrants of the compass, but the fourth quadrant, which contained the Red One's abiding place, was taboo. He made more thorough love to Balata, also saw to it that she scrubbed herself more frequently. Eternal female she was, capable of any treason for the sake of love. And though the sight of her was provocative of nausea, and the contact of her provocative of despair, although he could not escape her awfulness in his dream-haunted nightmares of her, he nevertheless was aware of the cosmic verity of sex that animated her and that made her own life of less value than the happiness of her lover with whom she hoped to mate. Juliet or Balata? Where was the intrinsic difference? The soft and tender product of ultra-civilization, or her bestial prototype of a hundred thousand years before her? 
There was no difference. Bassett was a scientist first, a humanist afterward. In the jungle heart of Guadalcanal, he put the affair to the test, as in the laboratory he would have put to the test any chemical reaction. He increased his feigned ardor for the bushwoman, at the same time increasing the imperiousness of his will of desire over her to be led to look upon the Red One face to face. It was the old story he recognized that the woman must pay, and it occurred when the two of them, one day, were catching the unclassified and unnamed little black fish, an inch long, half eel and half scaled, rotund with salmon golden roe that frequented the fresh water, and that were esteemed, raw and whole, fresh or putrid, a perfect delicacy. Prone in the muck of the decaying jungle floor, Balata threw herself, clutching his ankles with her hands, kissing his feet, and making slubbery noises that chilled his backbone up and down again. She begged him to kill her rather than exact this ultimate love payment. She told him of the penalty of breaking the taboo of the Red One, a week of torture, living the details of which she yammered out from her face in the mire until he realized that he was yet a tyro in knowledge of the frightfulness the human was capable of wreaking on the human. Yet did Bassett insist on having his man's will satisfied, at the woman's risk, that he might solve the mystery of the Red One singing, though she should die long and horribly and screaming? And Balata, being mere woman, yielded. An abrupt mountain, shouldering in from the north to meet a similar intrusion from the south, tormented the stream in which they had fished into a deep and gloomy gorge. After a mile along the gorge, the way plunged sharply upward, until they crossed a saddle of raw limestone which attracted his geologist's eye. Still climbing, although he paused often from sheer physical weakness, they scaled forest-clad heights until they emerged on a naked mesa or tableland. Bassett recognized the stuff of its composition as black volcanic sand and knew that a pocket magnet could have captured a full load of the sharply angular grains he trod upon. And then, holding Balata by the hand and leading her onward, he came to it, a tremendous pit, obviously artificial, in the heart of the plateau. Old history, the South Sea's sailing directions, scores of remembered data and connotations swift and furious surged through his brain. It was Mandana who had discovered the islands and named them Solomons, believing that he had found that monarch's fabled mines. They had laughed at the old navigator's childlike credulity. And yet here stood himself, Bassett, on the rim of an excavation for all the world like the diamond pits of South Africa. But no diamond this that he gazed down upon. Rather it was a pearl, with the depth of iridescence of a pearl, but of a size all pearls of earth and time welded into one could not have totaled, and of a color undreamed of in any pearl, or of anything else for that matter, for it was the color of the Red One. And the Red One himself Bassett knew it to be on the instant. A perfect sphere— full two hundred feet in diameter, the top of it was a hundred feet below the level of the rim. He likened the color quality of it to lacquer. Indeed, he took it to be some sort of lacquer applied by man, but a lacquer too marvelously clever to have been manufactured by the bush folk. Brighter than bright cherry red, its richness of color was as if it were red builded upon red. 
It glowed and iridesced in the sunlight as if gleaming up from underlay under underlay of red. In vain, Balata strove to dissuade him from descending. She threw herself in the dirt, but when he continued down the trail that spiraled the pit wall, she followed, cringing and whimpering her terror. That the red sphere had been dug out as a precious thing was patent. Considering the paucity of members of the Federated Twelve Villages and their primitive tools and methods, Bassett knew that the toil of a myriad generations could scarcely have made that enormous excavation. He found the pit bottom carpeted with human bones, among which, battered and defaced, lay village gods of wood and stone. Some, covered with obscene totemic figures and designs, were carved from solid tree trunks forty or fifty feet in length, he noted the absence of the shark and turtle gods, so common among the shore villages, and was amazed at the constant recurrence of the helmet motive. What did these jungle savages of the dark heart of Guadalcanal know of helmets? Had Mandana's men-at-arms worn helmets and penetrated here centuries before? And if not, then whence had the bushfolk caught the motive? Advancing over the litter of gods and bones, Balata whimpering at his heels, Bassett entered the shadow of the Red One and passed on under its gigantic overhang until he touched it with his fingertips. No lacquer that, nor was the surface smooth as it should have been in the case of lacquer. On the contrary, it was corrugated and pitted, with here and there patches that showed signs of heat and fusing. Also, the substance of it was metal, though unlike any metal or combination of metals he had ever known. As for the color itself, he decided it to be no application. It was the intrinsic color of the metal itself. He moved his fingertips, which up to that had merely rested along the surface, and felt the whole gigantic sphere quicken and live and respond. It was incredible. So light a touch on so vast a mass, yet did it quiver under the fingertip caress in rhythmic vibrations that became whisperings and rustlings and mutterings of sound, but of sound so different, so elusively thin that it was shimmeringly sibilant, so mellow that it was maddening sweet, piping like an elfin horn, which last was just what Bassett decided would be like a peal from some bell of the gods reaching earthward from across space. He looked at Balata with swift questioning, but the voice of the Red One he had evoked had flung her face downward and moaning among the bones. He returned to contemplation of the prodigy. Hollow it was, and of no metal known on earth, was his conclusion. It was right named by the ones of old time as the Starborn. Only from the stars could it have come, and no thing of chance was it. It was a creation of artifice and mind. Such perfection of form, such hollowness that it certainly possessed, could not be the result of mere fortuitousness. A child of intelligences, remote and unguessable, working corporally in metals it indubitably was— he stared at it in amaze, his brain a racing wildfire of hypotheses to account for this far journeyer who had adventured the night of space, threaded the stars, and now rose before him and above him, exhumed by patient anthropophagi, pitted and lacquered by its fiery bath in two atmospheres. But was the color a lacquer of heat upon some familiar metal? Or was it an intrinsic quality of the metal itself, 
he thrust in the blue point of his pocket knife to test the constitution of the stuff. Instantly, the entire sphere burst into a mighty whispering, sharp with protest, almost twanging goldenly. If a whisper could possibly be considered to twang, rising higher, sinking deeper, the two extremes of the registry of sound threatening to complete the circle and coalesce into the bull-mouthed thundering he had so often heard beyond the taboo distance. Forgetful of safety, of his own life itself, entranced by the wonder of the unthinkable and unguessable thing, he raised his knife to strike heavily from a long stroke, but was prevented by Balata. She upreared on her own knees in an agony of terror, clasping his knees and supplicating him to desist. In the intensity of her desire to impress him, she put her forearm between her teeth and sank them to the bone. He scarcely observed her act, although he yielded automatically to his gentler instincts and withheld the knife-hack. To him, human life had dwarfed to microscopic proportions before this colossal portent of higher life from within the distances of the sidereal universe. As had she been a dog, he kicked the ugly little bushwoman to her feet and compelled her to start with him on an encirclement of the base. Part way around, he encountered horrors. Even among the others did he recognize the sun-shriveled remnant of the nine-years girl who had accidentally broken Chief Van Gingen's personality taboo. And among what was left of these that had passed, he encountered what was left of one who had not yet passed. Truly had the bush folk named themselves into the name of the Red One, seeing in him their own image which they strove to placate and please with such red offerings." Farther around, always treading the bones and images of humans and gods that constituted the floor of this ancient charnel-house of sacrifice, he came upon the device by which the Red One was made to send his call singing thunderingly across the jungle belts and grasslands to the far beach of Ring Manu. Simple and primitive was it, as was the Red One's consummate artifice. A great king-post, half a hundred feet in length, seasoned by centuries of superstitious care, carven into dynasties of gods, each superimposed, each helmeted, each seated in the open mouth of a crocodile, was slung by ropes, twisted of climbing vegetable parasites, from the apex of a tripod of three great forest trunks— themselves carved into grinning and grotesque adumbrations of man's modern concepts of art and God. From the striker king-post were suspended ropes of climbers to which men could apply their strength and direction. Like a battering ram, this king-post could be driven end onward against the mighty red iridescent sphere. Here was where Nagurn officiated and functioned religiously for himself and the twelve tribes under him. Bassett laughed aloud, almost with madness, at the thought of this wonderful messenger, winged with intelligence across space, to fall into a bushman's stronghold and be worshipped by ape-like, man-eating, and head-hunting savages. It was as if God's world had fallen into the muckmire of the abyss underlying the bottom of hell, as if Jehovah's commandments had been presented on carved stone to the monkeys of the monkey cage at the zoo— as if the Sermon on the Mount had been preached in a roaring bedlam of lunatics. The slow weeks passed, 
The nights, by election, Bassett spent on the ashen floor of the Devil Devil House, beneath the ever-swinging, slow-curing heads. His reason for this was that it was taboo to the lesser sex of woman, and therefore a refuge for him from Balata, who grew more persecutingly and perilously loverly as the Southern Cross rode higher in the sky and marked the imminence of her nuptials. His days Bassett spent in a hammock swung under the shade of the great breadfruit tree before the Devil Devil House. There were breaks in this program when, in the comas of his devastating fever attacks, he lay for days and nights in the House of Heads. Ever he struggled to combat the fever, to live, to continue to live, to grow strong and stronger against the day when he would be strong enough to dare the grasslands and the belted jungle beyond and win to the beach and to some labor-recruiting blackbirding ketch or schooner and on to civilization and the men of civilization, to whom he could give news of the message from other worlds that lay, darkly worshipped by beastmen, in the black heart of Guadalcanal's midmost center. On the other nights, lying late under the breadfruit tree, Bassett spent long hours watching the slow setting of the western stars beyond the black wall of jungle where it had been thrust back by the clearing for the village. Possessed of more than a cursory knowledge of astronomy, he took a sick man's pleasure in speculating as to the dwellers on the unseen worlds of those incredibly remote suns, to haunt whose houses of light life came forth, a shy visitant from the rayless crypts of matter. He could no more apprehend limits to time than bounds to space— no subversive radium speculations had shaken his steady scientific faith in the conservation of energy and the indestructibility of matter. Always and forever must there have been stars, and surely in that cosmic ferment all must be comparatively alike, comparatively of the same substance or substances, save for the freaks of the ferment. All must obey or compose the same laws that ran without infraction through the entire experience of man. Therefore, he argued and agreed, must worlds and life be appanages to all the suns as they were appanages to the particular sun of his own solar system. Even as he lay here, under the breadfruit tree, an intelligence that stared across the starry gulfs, so must all the universe be exposed to the ceaseless scrutiny of innumerable eyes, like his, though grantedly different, with behind them, by the same token, intelligences that questioned and sought the meaning and the construction of the whole. So reasoning, he felt his soul go forth in kinship with that august company, that multitude whose gaze was forever upon the arras of infinity. Who were they? What were they, those far distant and superior ones who had bridged the sky with their gigantic, red iridescent, heaven-singing message? Surely and long since had they too trod the path on which man had so recently, by the calendar of the cosmos, set his feet. And to be able to send a message across the pit of space— Surely they had reached those heights to which man, in tears and travail and bloody sweat, in darkness and confusion of many counsels, was so slowly struggling. And what were they on their heights? Had they won brotherhood? Or had they learned that the law of love imposed the penalty of weakness and decay? Was strife life? Was the rule of all the universe the pitiless rule of natural selection? And— and most immediately and poignantly, 
were their far conclusions, their long-won wisdoms, shut even then in the huge metallic heart of the Red One, waiting for the first Earthman to read? Of one thing he was certain. No drop of red dew shaken from the lion mane of some sun in torment was the sounding sphere. It was of design, not chance, and it contained the speech and wisdom of the stars. What engines and elements and mastered forces, what lore and mysteries and destiny controls might be there? Undoubtedly, since so much could be enclosed in so little a thing as the foundation stone of a public building, this enormous sphere should contain vast histories, profounds of research achieved beyond man's wildest guesses, laws and formulae that, easily mastered, would make man's life on earth individual and collective, spring up from its present mire to inconceivable heights of purity and power. It was time's greatest gift to blindfold, insatiable, and sky-aspiring man. And to him, Bassett, had been vouchsafed the lordly fortune to be the first to receive this message from man's interstellar kin. No white man, much less no outland man of the other bush tribes, had gazed upon the Red One and lived. Such the law expounded by Nagurn to Bassett. There was such a thing as blood brotherhood. Bassett, in return, had often argued in the past, but Nagurn had stated solemnly no. Even the blood brotherhood was outside the favor of the Red One. Only a man born within the tribe could look upon the Red One and live— but now his guilty secret known only to Balata, whose fear of immolation before the Red One fast sealed her lips, the situation was different. What he had to do was to recover from the abominable fevers that weakened him and gain to civilization. Then would he lead an expedition back, and although the entire population of Guadalcanal be destroyed, extract from the heart of the Red One the message of the world from other worlds." But Bassett's relapses grew more frequent, his brief convalescences less and less vigorous, his periods of coma longer, until he came to know, beyond the last promptings of the optimism inherent in so tremendous a constitution as his own, that he would never live to cross the grasslands, perforate the perilous coast jungle, and reach the sea. He faded as the Southern Cross rose higher in the sky— till even Balata knew that he would be dead ere the nuptial date determined by his taboo. Nagurn made pilgrimage personally and gathered the smoke materials for the curing of Bassett's head, and to him made proud announcement and exhibition of the artistic perfectness of his intention when Bassett should be dead. As for himself, Bassett was not shocked. Too long and too deeply had life ebbed down in him to bite him with fear of its impending extinction. He continued to persist, alternating periods of unconsciousness with periods of semi-consciousness, dreamy and unreal, in which he idly wondered whether he had ever truly beheld the Red One, or whether it was a nightmare fancy of delirium. Came the day when all mists and cobwebs dissolved, when he found his brain clear as a bell, and took just appraisement of his body's weakness. Neither hand nor foot could he lift— so little control of his body did he have that he was scarcely aware of possessing one. Lightly, indeed, his flesh sat upon his soul, and his soul, in its briefness of clarity, 
knew by its very clarity that the black of cessation was near. He knew the end was close, knew that in all truth he had with his eyes beheld the Red One, the messenger between the worlds, knew that he would never live to carry that message to the world, that message, for aught to the contrary, which might already have waited man's hearing in the heart of Guadalcanal for ten thousand years. And Bassett stirred with resolve, calling Nagurn to him, out under the shade of the breadfruit tree, and with the old devil-devil doctor discussing the terms and arrangements of his last life effort, his final adventure in the quick of the flesh. I know the law, Onagurn, he concluded the matter. Whoso is not of the folk may not look upon the Red One and live. I shall not live anyway. Your young men shall carry me before the face of the Red One, and I shall look upon him and hear his voice, and thereupon die under your hand, Onagurn. Thus will the three things be satisfied. The law, my desire, and your quicker possession of my head, for which all your preparations wait. To which Nagurn consented, adding, It is better so. A sick man who cannot get well is foolish to live on for so little a while. Also it is better for the living that he should go. You have been much in the way of late. Not but what it was good for me to talk to such a wise one. But for moons of days we have had little talk. Instead, you have taken up room in the house of heads, making noises like a dying pig, or talking much and loudly in your own language, which I do not understand. This has been a confusion to me, for I like to think on the great things of the light and dark as I turn the heads in the smoke. Your much noise has thus been a disturbance to the long learning and hatching of the final wisdom that will be mine before I die. As for you, upon whom the dark has already brooded, it is well that you die now, and I promise you, in the long days to come, when I turn your head in the smoke, no man of the tribe shall come in to disturb us. And I will tell you many secrets, for I am an old man and very wise, and I shall be adding wisdom to wisdom as I turn your head in the smoke. So a litter was made, and, borne on the shoulders of half a dozen of the men, Bassett departed on the last little adventure that was to cap the total adventure for him of living with a body of which he was scarcely aware, for even the pain had been exhausted out of it, and with a bright, clear brain that accommodated him to a quiet ecstasy of sheer lucidness of thought, he lay back on the lurching litter and watched the fading of the passing world, beholding for the last time the breadfruit tree before the devil-devil house, the dim day beneath the matted jungle roof, the gloomy gorge between the shouldering mountains, the saddle of raw limestone, and the mesa of black volcanic sand. Down the spiral path of the pit they bore him, encircling the sheening, glowing red one that seemed ever imminent to iridesce from color and light into sweet singing and thunder. And over bones and logs of immolated men and gods they bore him, past the horrors of other immolated ones that yet lived, to the three king-post tripod and the huge king-post striker. Here Bassett, helped by Nagurn and Balata, weakly sat up, swaying weakly from the hips, and with clear, unfaltering, all-seeing eyes, gazed upon the Red One.
Once, Onegern, he said, not taking his eyes from the sheening, vibrating surface whereon and wherein all the shades of cherry red played unceasingly, ever a quiver to change into sound, to become silken rustlings, silvery whisperings, golden thrummings of chords, velvet pipings of elfland, mellow distances of thunderings. I wait, Nagurn prompted after a long pause, the long-handled tomahawk unassumingly ready in his hand. Once, Onagurn, Bassett repeated, let the red one speak, so that I may see it speak as well as hear it. Then strike thus, when I raise my hand, for when I raise my hand, I shall drop my head forward and make place for the stroke at the base of my neck. But, O oh Nagurn, I, who am about to pass out of the light of day forever, would like to pass with the wonder voice of the Red One singing greatly in my ears. And I promise you that never will a head be so well cured as yours, Nagurn assured him, at the same time signaling the tribesmen to man the propelling ropes suspended from the king-post striker. Your head shall be my greatest piece of work in the curing of heads. Bassett smiled quietly to the old one's conceit, as the great carved log, drawn back through two score feet of space, was released. The next moment he was lost in ecstasy at the abrupt and thunderous liberation of sound— but such thunder! Mellow it was, with preciousness of all sounding metals. Archangels spoke in it. It was magnificently beautiful before all other sounds. It was invested with the intelligence of supermen of planets of other suns. It was the voice of God, seducing and commanding to be heard. And the everlasting miracle of that interstellar metal— Bassett, with his own eyes, saw color and colors transform into sound, till the whole visible surface of the vast sphere was a crawl and titillant and vaporous with what he could not tell was color or was sound. In that moment the interstices of matter were his, and the interfusings and intermating transfusings of matter and force. Time passed. At the last, Bassett was brought back from his ecstasy by an impatient movement of Nagurn. He had quite forgotten the old devil-devil one. A quick flash of fancy brought a husky chuckle into Bassett's throat. His shotgun lay beside him in the litter. All he had to do, muzzle to head, was to press the trigger and blow his head into nothingness. But why cheat him, was Bassett's next thought. Head-hunting cannibal beast of a human that was as much ape as human, nevertheless old Nagurn had, according to his lights, played squarer than square. Nagurn was in himself a forerunner of ethics and contract, of consideration and gentleness in man. No, Bassett decided, it would be a ghastly pity and an act of dishonor to cheat the old fellow at the last. His head was Nagurn's and Nagurn's head to cure it would be. And Bassett, raising his hand in signal, bending forward his head as agreed so to expose cleanly the articulation to his taut spinal cord, forgot Balata, who was merely a woman, a woman merely and only and undesired. He knew without seeing, 
when the razor-edged hatchet rose in the air behind him. And for that instant, ere the end, there fell upon Bassett the shadows of the unknown, a sense of impending marvel of the rending of walls before the imaginable. Almost, when he knew the blow had started, and just ere the edge of steel bit the flesh and nerves, it seemed that he gazed upon the serene face of the Medusa Truth, and simultaneous with the bite of the steel on the onrush of the dark, in a flashing instant of fancy, he saw the vision of his head turning slowly, always turning, in the devil-devil house beside the breadfruit tree. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Brian. Hey, I'm Ollie. Oliver Wyman, you narrated this audiobook for us. That's me. The Red One, uh, first published in Cosmopolitan, October 1918. <laughs> uh, war is still going. World War I is still going. And he, uh, Jack London's been dead for two years. Um, this is not his final story published, but it's pretty close to his final story. He apparently wrote it in Hawaii in May of 1916, and he was dead in November 1916, so he didn't live that much longer after it. And it, it's I, I like to I, w- I wanted it to be his final story because his first story is uh, first published story is a science fiction story as well. Ah, and I nobody knows that Jack London is science fiction writer. I think that this is super super science fictiony. What do you guys think? Absolutely. Oh, totally. It, I mean, it, there's no word for. It, you know, at that time, there was no quote-unquote science fiction. There wasn't even scientific fiction. Right. But it's certainly in the tradition of uh, what we would say H.G. Wells sci- sort of science fiction is. Although I think it's a lot more existentially uh, concerned than it is about the actual technology. I think it's... it's I really, really like this story. What, what did you guys think? I, I enjoyed it. I was, you know, I'm I'm always... When I when I read stories written this long ago, I'm always I'm always I'm I shouldn't be, but I'm always surprised at the misogyny and racism. But uh, <laughs> there's a lot of racism in this one. Yeah, it's I, I I you know the the whole the the business with uh, Balata. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just had to stop and laugh from time to time because it was it, it, it's it's cartoonish almost. Yeah, yeah, his his. Um, his revulsion towards her and, and the way he describes her as unbeautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Although there is a line about there. He never found any women particularly interesting. Yeah. You got to wonder if, um, London weren't, wasn't a bit of a misogynist. Um, he, he was, he was pretty much everything, <laughs> but he was also anti-racist, which is, yeah, he was racist know, and anti-racist, you know, and he, and he changed his mind, um, several times in his life, but it's, uh, uh, it's it, well. This, this kind of reminds me of Lovecraft in a way, in that the uh, oh yeah, the science. I mean, partly the racism, but also the uh, the science fiction aspect. This is cosmic science oh, fiction. Absolutely. It's not a human invention. It's an alien invention, and it's way beyond us. And it's also uh, bleak. I mean, the end of this is is such a beautiful, sad moment. It's beautiful, absolutely. Um, yeah. And and I, I'm not sure it's bleak. I think it's almost it's transcendent, almost because. Even though it seems like, you know, that's kind of a horrible end, everybody has to end. And I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be cool if this was his last story written while he was dying? Uh, not exactly. It was, it was written before he was quite dying, but um, 
you know, six months later, he is, he is dying. He's dead. So, but, uh, but not via machete to the back of the head. Not machete <laughs> to the back of the head. Although, uh, that, that's a great place to start in the motifs that are going on in this. They're called motives in the actual yeah. text. I guess that word has morphed over the years, uh, nearly a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, the head uh, is almost chopped. His head is almost chopped off uh, as soon as he's on the island, right? Right. He loses two fingers, and and gets a uh, an injury to his head. Then later on, he's he's uh, somebody's head gets blown off. Um, they are playing with his his shotgun. Blows the guy blows his head off. Um, his he, guide loses his head. His guide has his head chopped off, right? And then uh, of course at the end he's had his head chopped off, but. He also um, he he's articulating his neck three times in the story to like you know it's like right here at the base of my skull this is right where it'll happen <laughs> like okay um, and the devil and then, devil house yeah in the devil devil house and then like the the heads in the devil devil house right it always says turning in the smoke <laughs> turning in the smoke yes. turning in the smoke I mean, in the short wind. story twisting in the smoke yeah four times at least that happens yeah. and it's like this is an image and I started thinking about the way it actually ends right is with the line beside the breadfruit tree and that's where the devil devil house is right. but actually breadfruit size of a human head oh really yeah is bre- are breadfruit and banyan trees the same thing I don't think so. No, uh, I'm not sure what know, kind of fruit a banyan has, but breadfruit is uh, it's it has the consistency of bread. I've never had it myself, but uh, it, they are the size of a human head. In fact, almost exactly the size of a human head. Huh. Although they're green and not red. Um, even when they're ripe, they're still not red. Good eating, I'm guessing. I'm guessing, <laughs> uh, along with a few other uh, eats on this. Uh, Island. It's funny. I actually I recorded a, uh, a novel not long ago by Bernard Malamud called Grace of God, and there's a similar motif, motive, if you will, uh, in that there's a, it's about a guy who's the last man on Earth, and he discovers he's not alone, but the other denizens left are apes, uh, huh. and at one point he he um, he mates with one of them. And and his his reaction to mating with a chimp is nowhere near as strong as as our protagonist's reaction ah. to mating with Balada, yeah. um, <laughs> which I just thought was sort of interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that was that was the funniest. That was the, <laughs> the you know he, he at one point he talked about he he insisted that she wash and scrubbed her himself. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a hygienic aspect to it. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, I, I was doing a lot of research for this, and London did go to uh, the Solomon Islands, including Guadalcanal. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And when he was there, it was pretty nightmarish. I mean, they ev- almost everything about it was nightmarish. He he describes how if you got like a mosquito bite, um, that would open up into a sore the size of you know a penny, and oh. then it would open up by a, like. Uh, by a week, it would the size of a dollar, like a dollar coin, and you would get them everywhere. And this is, you know, this is people who are washing and who are, you know, getting filled with malarial mosquitoes. And then, uh, but that's just, you know, the the jungle sort of, you know, mosquito bites taking over you, sort of 
feeling. But the actual politics of what's going on there, you know, this has got headhunters in the story. They had headhunters there. Like, they were chopping heads off. It absolutely was true. Mm. And they were eating them. They were eating the people as well. Uh, when Lennon went there, he, he was uh, sailing around with a bunch of other people um, and another ship. And the other ship was uh, a Blackbirder, it was called. And that's actually mentioned in this yeah, story. Yeah. Uh, called, uh, the Blackbirder called the Nari. Um, and he's asking, did Bateman die of delirium tremens yet? You know, like these guys are drinking themselves <laughs> to death. Um, well, Blackbirding is actually basically slavery. It's you uh. get a bunch of you put them on the ship, you force them, uh, you trick them or however it is, you get them on the ship, and then Shame. you take them to do forced labor on... Um, on a plantation somewhere. Wow. And so, uh, the keeping track of, you know, who owes who a head absolutely is true to life. I mean, the only thing that's not true to life that I am aware of is, is the, I mean, there, there are these giant, uh, butterflies as well that are on, uh, these, these islands. The Atlas but, Moth, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I oh, saw that. Yeah. Thank you, by the way. Yeah, the, well, there's the atlas moth, but uh, this one says butterfly. It doesn't say what what the species is, but yeah, these things can be almost a foot across, which is pretty big. Wow! And and they did try and shoot. The, the way to get them was with a shotgun. <laughs> so you you, don't, you think wow, that's kind of a harsh way to take down the bird, but it's, it's like overkill. Bird. You know, but it is. It does feel like overkill. But uh, yeah, I I think there's there's something cool going on in this story with regard to this. It's not an alien spaceship, I don't think. What do you guys think it is? I I just love the fact that we don't know that yeah. that it's it's not. Um, there's there's a there's a thing. I, I have a problem with fiction that that tells a story and doesn't let you in on the story. But if there's if if there's a if there's a thing like the red one in the story that that nobody you know no one in the story ends up knowing what it mm-hmm. is i'm okay with that i'm okay with something yeah, not being revealed but for instance and, and forgive me for harping on something in particular but i people for years have been telling me to read um stephen king's dark tower series and mm. i i read the first book and i and and I, I there were just so many sequences that i was like i'm sorry i don't i don't understand what's going on here you're not let you're not letting me in on the story and i i would like to know what's happening um, there, there are people in the story that know what's happening, and I'm, I'm not privy to what's going on. So I, I, I get really frustrated by that. But like Philip K. Dick, for instance, will often end a book <laughs> with all kinds of plot threads on, sure. on you know, left, left hanging open, and and that's that's okay because it's that's the people die and they don't know what happens at the end. You know, no one, not everyone <laughs> gets to find out. I, I would like that to be the case but uh, I, I don't imagine it is but they, they, I, I'm okay with that but just don't don't have something going on and not let me know what the heck just happened that's I find that very frustrating but I, I'm so I, you know I was listening to last week's show and I'm so sorry I wasn't in on that one because I am a huge Android stream huge yeah I'm a ba- I, when I was and you guys were talking about this as well you know it was Blade Runner that got me into Mm-hmm. Uh, Philip K. Dick, and uh, and that was the first book I read, and then immediately went to Ubik and uh, uh, Flow My Tears, another one of my favorite books of all time. I've been yeah. trying to get a stage production of that going well, for the cool. longest time. Oh, um, but I digress. 
forgive me. Um, yeah, I, I, I do love the, the whole... It's not really a MacGuffin, the red one, but just... No, I, I, think, it, I, I think it's very symbolic, but it, it doesn't pin down exactly what it is. I mean, it, the, you've got all these, you know, head motifs, right? Yeah. You've got the, the breadfruit... Um, and then it's like at one point I was thinking it's a it's an alien giant alien head (laughs) (laughs) completely round Um, and remember uh, carved on that on the the gong or the striker right Um, are this uh, these helmeted figures yeah right chariots Um, of the gods yeah well that's the thing is actually I was looking it up you know this um, ancient astronauts thing Uh was uh, first first Thought up in 1919, next year. Really? Who did that? Who did that? Yeah, I don't know. I was I was looking at. Uh, uh, I can look that up. Um, let's see. Uh, ancient astronauts. Astronauts. Uh, yeah, pseudo scientific. Yes, it's garbage. But um, <laughs> 1919 proposed by uh, Charles Ford. Of oh, course. Of course. Oh. That huh. makes sense. Yeah. Um, and Eric von Daniken, of course, the uh, guy who... The Chariots yeah. of the Gods. Yeah. Um, but uh, the thing is, is you know, it, this sort of happens a lot, I think, is somebody reads a science fiction story or fantasy story or horror story, and then they say, here's my theory as to what's really going on <laughs> in the world. And they don't cite where it came from. Exactly. I mean, it, this was published in Cosmopolitan, uh, which is kind of a funny... No, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for it to be like you know Jack London's ten sex tips or you know. exactly. <laughs> how to please your man. That's right. Back then, back then, Cosmopolitan apparently stood for Cosmos, uh, <laughs> and now it's it's, it's cosmetology, right? Uh, it's, uh, nice. It's, nice. It's, nice. It's like completely changing. It used to be full of fiction and you know very high end articles. And now it is, yeah. How full ten ways to know whether he? Ten ways to know whether your man is cheating on you, or full, full of art, fictional articles about ends, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, I I thought this reminded me a bit of uh, Rendezvous with Rama. The first time I read it, that you know you have this alien thing enters the solar system and mm-hmm. we grapple with it and ultimately don't know. We mm-hmm. we can't find, and that's so. I mean, that's a that's hard to pull off. Well, um, that, that's why I think the story is tragic. And Rendezvous with Rama is not so tragic. It's because um, you know, humans make progress, um, but it's it's still that that nice feeling of falling short of the mystery, like mm-hmm. like the like the classic uh, Clark short story, the one that's the basis of two thousand and one. Uh, uh, Sentinel? Sentinel, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that also I was thinking of. Um, it, it, this is a bit like a the the monolith, you know. Yeah, and we don't know what it is. I mean, in a book two thousand and one, it's explained. You know, you it's it's by the end, it's clear. But in the story of the Sentinel, we, humans, we, we can't, we ultimately end up destroying it, I think, because we can't figure it out. We just take it apart. But, and, but in doing that, we are, you know, doing, it's the tripwire for the aliens or something, right? They know we're up and off the planet. Well, that's what it is in 2001, but the story falls short. It's, you know, they're not sure what the hell just happened. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, you know, here, one of the things I like about this story is not just that, that nice buzz, that nice feeling. Mm-hmm. Again, it's almost Lovecraftian that sense of the universe being Absolutely. way greater. But mm. also, there's um, this is uh, there's like a sub subgenre of explorers' narratives where the white powerful explorer uh, gets beaten badly and barely survives, 
um, there's a from the 1790s. There's an awesome uh, explorer's journal by a Scotsman named Mungo Park, who goes into Africa looking for Timbuktu and has the most horrible time. Uh, he's enslaved, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's tortured, and he barely escapes. That's the whole book. It's it's the opposite of uh, you know Livingston and Stanley going through conquering all of Africa. Um, it's a it's really grim. And this one of the things that I find fascinating here is that Bassett is such a you know, he's from a first world country, he's from the British Empire, you know, he's technologically advanced, and he can't do a damn thing. You know, he, he tries, <laughs> but he's he's imprisoned, he's... Yeah, it is the overcoming of of the horrible circumstances, uh, and I think he does that in the end, right? Mentally. Yeah. Mentally, he makes, you know, he... He can't even lift his, an, uh, his, his arm, right? Yeah, and, uh, you know, there's this, uh, there's so many great lines. Uh, wait, oh, yeah. Beneath that roof of the jungle was an aerial ooze of vegetation. <laughs> Monstrous parasitic dripping of decadent life forms that rooted in death and lived on death. And you think, <laughs> you know, in, in part, you, you can't use a word like decadent in this time period without thinking of the racial implications mm-hmm. and which are different there in the story. But Bassett's great, you know, great white hunter thing falls apart. You know, yeah. It's, it's a, uh, that's wh- that's why I think London is. I mean, he's not. You know, Robert E. Howard could have written a lot of this story, but Howard never disposes of his characters, right? Yeah, this would have been uh, uh, the Puritan. What's his name? Um, Solomon oh, yeah, Cain. Cain. Solomon Cain. Yeah, sure. He would just exterminate the island, right? And, yeah. and 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 beaten the hell out of the red one. <laughs> yeah, and he would have saved some uh, very attractive uh, black woman and not had sex. That's with right. Her. That's right. You know, he didn't want to spoil his essence. You know, he'd uh, keep himself um, Yeah, so, like, but that's because, you know, Howard, the farthest away from his home, he went to Mexico. He lives in Texas. He goes to Mexico, right? Right. But London, he went everywhere. Absolutely. Right? He li- the, there's two things you can say about London. Yeah, he stole story ideas from other people. He did. Um, and then he went and lived a whole amazing life. Um, and stole the story ideas from his own life. Every story that he wrote is based on something that happened to him or something very much like the places he went to. Yeah. It's almost and like you journal, feel it. You know? Absolutely. It, 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 it's, it's, it's powerful. And the thing is, is, you know, there is no red one on this island, but in the heart, this has been compared to Heart of Darkness. Uh, I don't think it mm-hmm. quite holds up to that high level, but it is pretty good. I mean, um, the the sound of the red one, the way it's described, you know, the, mm. the ringing of the bell, there it, it starts with it. The abrupt liberation of sound, um, and then it says it would, it was capable of knocking the w- walls of cities down. Right. This is the, this is the, Jericho. yeah, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. Um, I noticed later uh, when they, we get actually out to see the the knocker, um, it is two score. Uh, feet in length, right? 40. 40 is that biblical number. Everything's 40, 40, 40 right? Right. Um, and that made me think, uh, oh, it's like an alien ark. And the way he talks um, about, you know, what's inside that thing, it's definitely not, you know, a natural object. It's a created artificial object. What's inside that thing is, is it the libraries of, of these super supermen from other stars or is it you know is it the is it a uh panspermia this is mm-hmm. 
you know, it's it's so it, it's it's sort of a, this giant. I, I was reading also the Jungian analysis of it. <laughs> Somebody said, you know, it's it's a it's a giant egg, and he's the he's the sperm that's finding its way up, <laughs> up the giant vagina shaped island, right? Right. And past the uh, and and if you start looking at it that way, I mean, it it does seem like that. Even if it even if it's not a um, the little white, the little white man working his way up towards this well, giant egg. Kind of is. I mean, I, I used to, I used to teach at uh, Centenary College in Louisiana, and one of my colleagues was Earl Labor, who's a mm. world-renowned London scholar. In fact, just this year published a great London biography, which I recommend. And and he was he was really keen on the Jungian interpretation, and and he and I talked about this. Um, and I liked it. I kind of. The, the end of it really, if you'll excuse the pun, resonates with me. Um, and I think in part it's because of the, uh, if you go for the Jungian approach, you can also talk about the weird one is a mandala. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's this great symbol of unity um, and integration. And, you know, uh, Bassett's mind really comes to a peak at the end. I mean, he's so, he's so mentally healthy, he doesn't mind if he gets killed. Yeah. He's, he's, he's kind of reached this uh, glorious synthesis of his, of his brain. And, you know, the, and the red one, that's the other thing about the egg, is it's round, it's balanced, you know, like a good mandala. You can, it's symmetrical across two axes. You know, and that's, I mean, I'm not a Jungian, but I, I, I like the way that, that reading feels. Um, I mean, I think, I think the egg is more of a, of a Freudian reading, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Go, go ahead, Ollie, sorry. No, I was just going to say that there's something that struck me about the way that he, from a distance, it appeared lacquered. It appeared smooth and right. and, and almost frictionless. Mm-hmm. And then and then when he gets up close, he realizes it's pitted and 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 it's it's actually not smooth at all. But and there was something I, when I was a boy, I had fever dreams where mm-hmm. I would where I would be fl- floating over a vast plain, which would change from being completely devoid of of feature and 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 topography to being this infinitely chaotic realm of just you know crevices and 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 it's just something that it's something very visceral that that spoke to me and I was like I've 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 had sort of you know hallucinations or, or visions as a child of, of things, you know, giant spheres that, that, ch- that changed in, in, you know, in their, in their texture from, from completely featureless to, com- and, and it, there's something that just spoke to me about that. I really, I was, I was very, uh, it, it really, it, like you said, it, it resonated with me, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's, 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 I, I just love that, it, that, it, that there was no answer. That it was, you know, and and he was at peace at the end, like you say, he was completely okay with everything. Yeah, he he had the potential to blow his own head off, right, <laughs> and to cheat the guy of the of the horrible death of you know being sort of. Uh, I mean, w- w- I was trying to understand why this headhunter culture existed at all. Like, what was the logic behind chopping people's heads off and you know hanging them up and you know, counting, counting these heads. And the explanations aren't like, it's really clear, but one of them is, is it's to mortify, right? Is to, is to bring down uh, something that is great. You know, this great white hunter right. had his head chopped off and is hanging in this, this hut for all time. Yeah. Right. And, and there is that, uh, interestingly, there is a, another white man's head in there, right? Yep. Blonde. 
Yeah, and it said it had ringlets in his ears or something. And I was like, okay, is that, how old is this? It's ancient, he thinks. Oh, good point, good point. And I was, is that, like, is that one of these ancient astronauted helmeted, the, there's these helmets, helmeted uh, beings, in, and they're sitting inside of the mouths of crocodiles. Oh, that's like, right. What, 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 what does that mean? I mean, it's so interesting. Is he saying that, you know, that they are, the, the people here are like the, the, did they find this thing and, and, you know, dig it up? Because it's described as being uh, like a, one of those diamond mines, right? The, in South Africa, where they've, they've sort of done a, dug a ring around into the earth so oh. that they can get down deep, deep, deep to get, dig it up. Some, Millions of years ago, billions of years ago, this thing came to the earth, and they've been they there's not enough people that they could have dug it up in a generation right it's It's a labor of of thousands of years, and there's skulls and bones and totems of all sorts of different kinds of gods beneath. By the way, you guys notice how many tribes are on the island there were were there twelve is that right twelve <laughs> with all these. With all these biblical references, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of like it's it's the it's the story of uh, the Israelites, mm-hmm. except uh, and and going with that, um, I went pretty deep on this story. Uh, so I was I was like, okay, I don't know much about breadfruit. I did the research, and I looked up uh, the name uh, that people call breadfruit in um, in the Solomon Islands, and it is it's called nimbalo. Nimbalo. And of course, uh, nimbus uh, is the dark cloud around a person's head. Yes, it's nice. a nice. ring. And then I was thinking, well, this ring Manu. I looked it up. There is no place in the Solomon Islands called Ring Manu. There's no beach called that. There's no city called that. So I was okay. I don't know what that. I know what a ring is. I looked up Manu, and <laughs> I think I tweeted that at you guys this morning. The progenitor of all humanity from the right. Hindu tradition, right? Uh, going to Sanskrit oh, really? again, right? Yeah, and he's got a story just like the deluge and the ark. There's an ark. Yeah. Um, it's an. It makes me think this thing's an ark, right? And that, so, I mean, I don't know what's going on in this story. Uh, see, I was so hinting. I went the opposite way completely. I thought the um, twelve for me uh, makes me think of apostles. And, oh, interesting. And the red one is, of course, a voice you know, telling you right. knowledge, uh, but no one can understand it. That's what's so frustrating about this is, you know, you have these 12, if you will, deaf apostles who uh, ah. don't know what to make of it and <laughs> can't carry out the message. The message is, chop heads off. <laughs> that's that's what they get. So clearly they're not getting it right, you know. Uh, um, and then that's that's part of the tragedy of the end. You know, and and uh, Bassett himself can't figure this out. He can't make it all the way through. He can't understand what a. I mean, that's you know the gospel, right? Is the good news, mm-hmm. literally what it means. Um, and here, there's there's no news. It's it hasn't been heard. Well, well, there there's there is something there. They, you know, there's a comfort in what Naguru is going to do to him. Uh, or Nagurn, I should say. Um, yeah. Nagurru. <laughs> um, I love the chief's said, name. Yeah. He <laughs> says, um, uh, I would cure it well. He's talking about his head. I would cure it well. It would take months, and the skin would not wrinkle. 
it would be as smooth as your skin now. Right? He's going to live forever. He's, he's going to be immortal hanging in there, and he'll get all the secrets. He's going to tell them all the wisdom. But you'll be dead. <laughs> you'll be dead. But, it's okay. But, you know, it's a price you well, pay. This, but this is, you know, it, it, London was a super atheist, right? Yep. Didn't believe, he even wrote a, like a, a little poem about how you know I'm just I'll be dust and I'll be gone, and uh, tying it into the Lovecraft um, Lovecraft same story right he yeah. absolutely does not believe in life after death, and that is fundamental to his view. I mean, if you face the harsh reality of the world, uh, you are going to die and you will be ended, and that is horrifying. Um, in here, at the very end, he says um, it was a, what was it, the truth, uh, yes, here it is. It seemed that he gazed upon the serene face of the Medusa, and then, period, truth, period. Was, right? was that a period? Yep, I think so. And, okay. yep, yeah. it's a period. And, comma, simultaneous with the bite of the steel and the onrush of the dark, capital D, in a flashing incident of fancy, he saw his vision turning ball. Right? He, 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 there is no life after death. He is not going to... It, it, the, it is a fancy that he will be able there to hear the spirits. Even, the, even the Gur, Nagurn says, you know, it won't make any difference because you'll be dead. But I'll still share the secrets with you, right? You know, I actually, I read from a, from a different copy. I read from the... Uh, I don't know where it came from. It was a PDF that I got... <laughs> Um, it wasn't the and and it does it is uh, the face of the Medusa comma truth and the, I I puzzled over that sentence because there's a lot of because of the style of the times and, and his writing uh, I had there were a couple of sentences where I had to go all right let me see if I can figure this one out <laughs> and that was <laughs> one that was that the and it seemed that he gazed upon the serene face of the Medusa truth and truth is capitalized but it is a comma. So it's I, its own I, sentence I, in this version. Yeah. Oh, so because I, I thought I thought the, what he's saying is, you know, the truth is the thing you gaze upon truth, and you turn to stone. Exactly. Uh, but um, no, it's it's really. I mean, that especially Brian, that that line that you mentioned before uh, about the 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 vegetate the oozing mm-hmm. vegetation. Um, it's just he, he's he was a brilliant writer. He really, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Lovecraft wrote uh, uh, he wrote a lot of poems, and I'm really into his poems. I've been into his poems for about a year, and every time I read a new one, it's like, wow, this is great, just full of good stuff. And his hardest one, the the one that I never get through in one sitting, it's it's a really long poem. Um, it's called Aletheia Fricotes. <laughs> Uh, and I like I don't know what that means. And then <laughs> the next line is uh, it's Latin and it goes um, omnia resus omnia purvus uh, omnia something else nili or something something like that. And that that part means uh, all all grinning like a grinning skull or laughing uh, all crushed all nothing. Yeah. And Aletheia Fricotis is is a mix of Greek. Uh, I think it's Greek, yeah, and it means frightful truth. Huh. And it's it's basically his his old theme. It's all you know. There's nothing. It's death. And although we can dress it up, and you know, it's horrifying and all that stuff. Really, the harsh 
truth is we are going to be gone, and that'll be the end. Meantime, distract yourself with Elton Tars. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. And, and astronomy and, uh, oh, and yeah. friends. I mean, that would be yes. Lovecraft himself. Um, well, this is, that's interesting. This kind of, for me, plugs into the nihilist stream of 20th century horror. I mean, it really resonates mm-hmm. with um, Thomas Ligotti, for example, mm-hmm. um, who is you know, openly, openly about uh, nothing and uh, the horror, the horror of, of everyday life. Have you guys seen um, True Detective? Absolutely. No, I all those lines not. are from Ligotti stuff, right? Yeah, he, he, if if you haven't seen it, it's it's a it's um, I think it was really good overall. I think the I agree. The end is controversial, but um, but the first half is brilliant. It's a uh, it's a detective story about two guys trying to solve a uh, a, a crime. Murders. And um, but one of them is this Thomas Ligotti fan. He's this bleak nihilist, and uh, he's it's absolutely hilarious just to listen to his discussions with his partner. Mm-hmm. So what do you believe his partner will say? Well, I think consciousness was a historical mistake and evolutionary backwater. And <laughs> the kindest thing we can do is decide not to reproduce and march hand in hand into oblivion. His partner's like, what? What? How about if you just never talk again? You know? <laughs> That's um, great. I need so you, to see this. It's really amazing. You've got to watch it. All, it also has uh, uh, there's all kinds of... Um, uh, references to classic horror. There's uh, King in Yellow is a major theme. Uh, uh, it's uh, Robert W. Chambers. Yep. Uh, yeah. I've, I'm not familiar with Ligotti. I got to check him out. Uh, well, Ligotti is is extraordinary. He wrote a bunch of short stories in the uh, 80s and early 90s, and then his work really slowed down. Um, but his short stories are extraordinary. They're they're very very weird, very intense. Um, I mean, you can make, make a straight line, uh, Edgar Allan Poe to Lovecraft to Ligotti in terms of mood, uh, yeah. intensity. The, the collection I recommend is called Songs of a Dead Dreamer. I think that's his best stuff. That's his first collection. Um, his later tales are good. Um, he wrote a novella. Actually, it's almost novel length. He wrote a long essay on nihilism called The Conspiracy Against the Human Race. Uh, there's a, a fan site uh, devoted to him, which is uh, Thomas Agathe Online, which has spawned uh, imitators and, and writers since. The guy's uh, reckless. He never, almost never um, appears anywhere. He barely does interviews. Uh, used to live in Detroit. I think he's in Florida now, caring for an aged parent, but, uh, but a fascinating, fascinating guy. Extraordinary. I mean, I really recommend his stuff. Um, uh, Pseudopod did a recording of uh, a short story of his called The Bungalow, which is very well read. Uh, look that one up. I, so, I just wish I had more time to read. It's that's the worst thing about my job. Being a narrator doesn't give you time to I, read. Because I, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm in the booth all day. At the last, you know, at the end of the day, I'm like, I gotta watch a movie or play a video game. I yep, I yep. can't be bothered to read a book. Comics, maybe. Right. But uh, yeah. Wow. I definitely. I'm okay. I'm gonna put okay, this on you- my list. If you're if you're this kind of science fiction fan, Ollie, have you read the comic book The Manhattan Projects? No, no, okay. I'm I'm so out of the loop, and I'm 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 I have to say I'm I'm just glad that they've rebooted the DC universe because now I can catch up with the old one. But uh, uh, <laughs> no, I, but tell I, me, tell I, me, track this down. If, uh, have you read this, uh, Jesse? Uh, I didn't like it, but I, I oh, read okay. the first issue. Uh, oh, I, I just read the first collection, and it really it, it's an alternate history of. Uh, the Manhattan Project, where things are very wrong and, and very different. Um, 
I, I don't want to spoil it for you because so much of it is just historical fun. Where like what happens to different people, like Oppenheimer and Einstein. Uh, Werner von Braun shows up as a. Oh, this is great. He's Richard Feynman. Yep, Feynman's wow. like one of the few actual heroes in it. Um, uh, and you get von Braun as a kind of uh, half cyborg, um, deep cover Nazi agent. Uh, <laughs> and the first thing the first thing they do is they fight. Um, uh, Japanese special forces, which were uh, using a trans no, a uh, teleportation gate to send reanimated samurai armor to attack the U.S. I mean, it's, it's it's outrageous. I mean, I but this I just is thought, so up my alley. If you don't have time, it's it's oh, a no. really quick, it's a really quick read, um, uh, and the uh, ideas are just fun. And uh, well, I have been uh, forbidden from from buying physical media. <laughs> Since I have so oh. many books and comics and DVDs, I think, I, I think our, gonna... our wives are on the same page here. There you uh, go. My, there my you Kindle, go. My Kindle is conceptually bulging with books, but of course, <laughs> I've been I've been dealing that with that problem by scanning. I, I'll 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 take the book and I say, well, I still have it. <laughs> I cut it up and then I put it through the scanner. Yep. And then it's gone, and I feel bad, but if I need to refer back to it, I can get it. Oh, you're like the, um, like the Google book scanning project in uh, Rainbow's End. Personal. <laughs> it's a personal version. And, you know, uh, it, it, may, it really justifies, like, I can, I can buy another book because I don't have to fill up the shelf. Right. Um, and I keep the one, you know, if there's a picture book that, you know, you want to refer to. or you, you just keep the sort of the, the sentimental favorites. You keep the ones that... Uh, you know, sort of trophy books, but you don't have to keep everything. And, um, and whenever I find a new uh, public domain, you know, novel, like I just found out that there's a 1960 novel by the guy who wrote Rogue Mail. Uh, Jeffrey that Houseman? Je- Household, Jeffrey oh, Household. Really? Amazing writer, really cool, clear uh, prose and really fun thriller. Um, found out that there was a... Um, uh, one of his 1960 novels was was public domain, and apparently quite good. Um, it's it's on order. When I get it, it's going in the scanner. It'll be in the garbage, unfortunately, or recycled the paper. But uh, it'll be up as a PDF, and somebody can make an audiobook out of it, and anyone can download it. it, it it's it's a good way for me to both justify and not have the problems of being a avid collector. Yeah. That's the, there's another one that's coming too. Um, this really, I never. Every once in a while, I find that there's some book that I've never heard of that sounds amazing, and I'm trying to remember the name of it now. I love that feeling. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, it's it, it was uh, it came out in like 1930, and it was like a dystopia um, by an author. Didn't write very much other things, but it has what, what's that symbol with the three um, triskelion? You know, the three uh, yeah. feet kicking each other, or what, mm. uh, some sort of wheel. Yeah. Um, I just can't remember the name it's of the book. The symbol of the Isle of Man, too. Right. Oh. Um, so that book, it, apparently it's public domain, so yeah, it's getting a, an old paperback copy of this well, very expensive hardcover that nobody reads anymore because nobody's out there promoting it. Well, let me ask you guys then, your advice. I've got this problem. I mean, we all have this problem. Um, then of, of you know the, the universe not providing us enough physical volume for the books that we absolutely have to have. Yeah. So I have there are there are two types of books that I absolutely have to buy and print, and they're both because of visual issues. Books that have maps that are important, mm-hmm. and books that have art 
that it's important. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, history books especially with, with detailed maps. And I, I just bought, reviewed this book um, about the photographer, uh, Moybridge, and you know, half the book was photography. Mm. And so I, I can't buy these for my Kindle because it, it, no. they look terrible. Um, so My understanding is that, uh, I was just told this, that Amazon charges by the kilobyte and that's why almost no Kindle books have decent pictures. I hadn't heard that. They charge, charge the author by the kilobyte for downloads, uh, which makes no sense, because why would they do that? Because well, that's really weird. cheap, right? Well, but there's not a lot about Bezos' business model that makes sense to me, and that's probably because I'm not a businessman. But, I, you know, the the whole he's cutting off his nose despite his face with this... I mean, on the other hand, you know, if you had, like, you know, massively in 1,200 DPI, uh, and, you know, you have a massive hit, it would significantly impact you uh, uh, if you have lots of them going. But Amazon is, you know, they're the, they're the ones who rent their servers out to everybody. Right. Storage isn't an issue for them. No. But, I mean, e-books are notorious for not having good art in them. Right. So I... It's just all, but the the screens, you know, given even with an iPad with a Retina screen, it's still just not big enough, right? You know, it's it's right. high res enough, but my eyes, <laughs> my eyes are too old for uh, that. And you can't zoom your face right up to it, right? Yeah, uh, it's a screen. You can it's zoom, not a, you, you can, can zoom it, it, but you can only you're only going to be able to see so much of the picture at, at one time. When we all have, you know, twenty four inch by. 30-inch, you know, laptops or uh, tablets, then, then, then I can see getting this for... But no, I'm, I'm with you. If you're getting a, an art book or something with maps, um, I, I, somebody, what did I get? I actually did... Uh, one of the Humble Bundles not long ago had a um, uh, uh, artwork of Alex Ross mm. in, you know, as a PDF... And I was like, uh, you know, and it was, I, I think I paid $2 for the collection of 20 books. But uh, I was like, okay, yes. but I'm never going to, you know, that's something I would want to have. I have plenty of those big coffee table editions, but it's it's not very useful in a as a PDF. No, but at least it doesn't take up any physical space. Yeah. And that, uh, although it does take up a little. I've got hard drives that, you know, like, <laughs> have to stack them somewhere. <laughs> but, I mean, you know... On that hard drive is, you know, thousands of books. Sure. And well, maybe the trick is to uh, use a laptop or a desktop and, you know, get the full major screen size. Yeah. Uh, I have a new 34-inch monitor. Oh, uh, I'm jealous. It's a monitor, too. It's not a one of those TVs that are turned into a monitor. Nice. It was $700, but I it was a nice upgrade from a 27 well, let me let me haul us back to the story for a minute. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, there are a few more things I just I just love in this. And and Ollie, I can't do your voice, um, but that the opening and closing paragraphs just still work with me. I mean, uh, one of the things that surprised me about the uh, beginning is how London is such a tangible writer, and this story has so many great physical details, sensual details. But here, this is. Um, this is a, such a conceptual beginning. You know, walls of cities might fall down before so vast and compelling as summons. Um, the, with the wantonness of a sick man's fancy, he likened it to the mighty cry of some titan of the elder world, elder world. Yeah. vexed with misery or wrath. <laughs> 
mean, higher and higher it rose, challenging, demanding, in such profounds of volume that it seemed intended for ears beyond the narrow confines of the solar system. So you get this, this on the one hand, we get this you know, huge hint, okay, this is going to be an alien thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get this Lovecraftian sense, a titan yeah. of the elder world. And for me, for this contemporaries, I, I'm, this reminds me so much of Stapledon. The, mm-hmm. his, his immediate sense is cosmic. Uh, you think about something like Star Maker, which leaps into the universe in a couple of pages. When I do that book, uh, this is um, you know I, I, this really surprises me as a, as an opening. It really, and then it plunges right back down into you know, him and mosquitoes and his watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it is. It's about it's about the separation of the mind and the body. Right. Mm. We've got this this man who's covered in sores and slowly withering. You know, and becoming emaciated and and. And and then there's this woman who has rancid hair and covered in she's got pig blood dripping from her ear, right? Just sort of a disgusting hate of the body. Um but coming from, you know, this guy who's supposed to be all about the muscularity of of actually physically going out in the world and experiencing it, it's it's also very cerebral, um, sort of about you know, just you are your head, you are your mind, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, passing through the delirium. You know, he gets these stages where he, he's not clear. Um, he can't tell whether he shot that woman who was uh, what uh, strung up like a uh, like a Jesus figure. You know, uh, with her knees crushed. He, did he shoot her for uh, mercy? Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, but he doesn't even know if he did. And then when he becomes clear, you know, uh, okay, I can't get, I'm not getting out of this. Um, yeah, let him have my head because I experienced, I had this experience and it wasn't for my body. It was despite my body. It kind of reminds me of the, um, the Martians in War of the Worlds because the, the Martians, remember, are so physically advanced that they're basically all head. Mm-hmm. Which is why they need all the prosthetics of um, of machines like the tripods um, to work. You know, they're kind of they're kind of passive without them. They're kind of helpless uh, without those things. You know, it's um, it, it, it's in the same spot as one of those. You know, Marsh. I mean, it, it, it comes after War of the Worlds. It it could be uh, uh, one of the Martians. Um, you know. Trial shots, a cannonball from Mars. Well, hey, the red one is a description of Mars, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get the sense that it's not from our solar system. Um, yeah. Where he gets that sense is not clear, but uh, I I like to trust the um, the reader, the narr- I mean, who is telling this story, right? That's the funny part, is we get this story sort of abstractly, but the, the sense of the narrator it's not London. It's nobody, right? Mm-hmm. It's a God's eye point of view, and it doesn't even hint that there is a God. Right. It's a kind of third-person omniscient. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I love what London thinks about and what he does, and this seems like... I mean, it's a, if, this is his, if this was his final story, it wasn't his final published story, but it was, you know, it was close, written close to the end of his life... Hmm. Um, I mean, it's a nice send-off. I, he's at the height of his writing power here. It's much better written than, um, you know, his Iron Heel or... I mean, 
I think it might be that this this length was his ideal length as well. Uh, he his novels are short, right? Generally, but this is pretty great, great pretty great story. Oh yeah, it leaves us with with all these feelings and questions, and we don't have answers. Yeah, I gotta go back and read some. I think it might be time to reread Call of the Wild. Great book. That always holds up. It does. It's got it's got so much in it, and you know, like that dog. I mean, <laughs> oh, by the way, I didn't give you my really easy theory on this, right? Okay, the really easy theory is he's a basset hound chasing after a big ball. <laughs> 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 the I the like that. To the forest and the, and the king pose. Is after, big it's stick, too big. Right? You can't bring it back. <laughs> and and. And at the end, he gets it. It's like the dog catching up with the car, right? He catches it and then doesn't. He just can't. He can't bring it back. It's too heavy. Right. Forget it. You know. That's it. I love it. That's great. I mean, it, it, the the funny thing is, is you know, he is a dog man, right? He's always oh, yeah. thinking about dogs, and uh, and that's what he's known for. Um, even you know, even even like, if you if you say, okay, what what really do people know uh, Jack London for? It's the two dog books. Um, the, I, I, what's the third one? What's the one that everybody knows? It's set in the North Pacific. Uh, it's on a sailboat. Is Iron Man or something? You know what I'm oh. talking about? Brian? Oh, Sea Wolf. Sea Wolf. Sea Wolf. Awesome. Right. So the Sea Wolf. I mean, technically, I don't think there's any dogs in it, but it's got a wolf on the in the mm. title. Oh, that's an intense uh, book. That's an intense yeah. book. Yeah. Oh. Uh, and and uh, also, there's a short story that everybody cites um, as you know one that people know and that's um uh I can't remember what it's called now but it's the one with the the man who goes out in the cold in the Yukon to and build freezes fire. to death to build, to a, build fire. a fire there we go that's what I'm right saying. everybody knows this one and that's got uh, a little bit from the wolf's po- or the dog slash wolf's point of view yeah well the dog lives the dog takes off it's got this sense of the cosmic um oh, yeah oh yeah it's, it's the cold of space reaching down and crushing that this man, right? I love that part. Oh, it's okay. amazing. Um, and there's, in, even even in the Call of the Wild, the dog at one point is sitting around the fire um, and it's sort of in a hypnagogic state. It's It starts thinking about its ancestors, you know, it's sort of a racial memory. And it looks over and it sees this sort of caveman <laughs> where the regular, you know, regular man is its current master is. He's got this, this real sense of bringing uh, bringing together the physical and the the uh, philosophical, and I I see that here as well. I just love reading London. He, he's so he's so smart, and yet he he's not he's not airy fairy smart, you know. <laughs> you, remind, you remind me of the uh, beginning of um, Iron Heel when uh, I'm blanking on his name, but the the great hero uh, mm-hmm. out argues everybody. This is right. this is a depressing dinner party where all these guys are invited, these professors and bishops, and he just out argues them. That's the whole. <laughs> just, even his clothes give away how he's not an upper right. upper crust professor, whatever. Right, right, and he's he's very very vigorous, very masculine, very virile. Yeah, that's that's a key a key part of it. Yeah, it, it's a it's a dichotomy, right? But it it's 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 such a great combination because. So many of the writers I read that I don't like, it seems like they never leave the room where they type the 
type the scripts, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they're re- they read somebody's book and they thought that's cool. I can I have a version of that sort of. <laughs> they write it and they don't really leave it. Um, and you know that is what writing is for a lot of people. And to me, it's you can feel it in the text. Um, I, I I thought well maybe he's making up all this stuff about Solomon Islands. No, it's all true. The only thing that's not true is this big red one. By the way, uh, the premise for this was suggested by George Sterling, who I just know a little bit about, but he was like a, a uh, he was sort of a writing guru in California. You guys heard of him? No, only a little. Uh, yeah, he, he's got a one poem up I've got on uh, the PDF page. It's called um, A Wine of Wizardry. And um, he's sort of a he 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 suggested um, to London, what if um, the ali- what if some alien sent a message to the Earth and it was not understood? Huh. And, and that was the that, basis of this. That's the basis for this. And it it's exactly right. I mean, those all those heads being collected and all those bodies being chopped up to serve this god that has no understood purpose. I mean, it, w- it didn't come with its own gong, right? <laughs> Whatever they're doing to it is, is, uh, is probably not what it's for. <laughs> I was kind of wondering, well, I was going to say, I was kind of, at the, at the end, I was, I was kind of hoping that he would shoot the thing, that he huh. would shoot it. And then we'd get, then we'd get a better sound. <laughs> then, it, then it wouldn't, you know, maybe that would keep, you know, that's the gun that doesn't go off. Right. Yeah. So. Huh. Well, he does. No, he. he no, he shot. Some, he shot somebody, or no, somebody shot. No, no, him. no. I, no. What I'm saying is, like, it is. It's. It's set up. Oh, know, I like, see what you're saying. The to, to be like that, and it just. Uh, I'm. I'm. Is there a door in this thing? Do you have to say a magic word to make it open mm. up? Right. Yeah. Right. No, it, it's just so. It's just so far removed. You know, like you take your iPad and give it to uh, a Neanderthal. Um, exactly. You know how do they know how to turn it on? I'm, I'm reminded also of um, King Kong because this is like <laughs> Skull Island, right? Yeah, if, with the giant wooden. Uh-huh. Reminds you of the uh, the big the big the the bolt that they use to to close the gate. You know. Yep. Yeah, it's a uh, and the, and the, all, they've got all these worshippers, right? Yeah. And and the worshippers don't really know what they're worshiping, which is also a nice kind of cynical take on on religion, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Which would fit for London? Uh, no, I, I'm. I just, I just always like this story. I, I'm. I'm st- I've never. I, I hadn't read it until um, just prior. I, I read about it, and I said, I got to read this. I, I, I was looking at the pictures, and the illustrate. You, you saw Oliver. You saw the uh, pictures illustrated in Cosmopolitan. Oh yes, yes. I, I mean, I think they're pretty darn good. Um, they're frightening, and they're. I, I think they were originally in color, but or at least some of them were in color, but uh, not in the scans that I found. So, see, I was anticipating just from the title, but before having read it, I I, I thought that the red one would refer to a a, a red skinned native, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, or like a big ape. I was like the Kong thing was definitely there for me in the beginning. I was expecting they were going to find a giant red ape or something, but mm-hmm. um, uh, it was. Um, I, again, I, I really I like the ambiguity of it, and I like the fact that it it very well could be a natural. It, you know, he he says it was definitely an artifice, but yeah, uh, 
there's no reason why this couldn't be created by some yeah, process it, that we don't yeah, understand. It's like the core of a star that had collapsed exactly, or exactly. and fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, the, the helmeted figures, you know? Yeah. It gives you... It, it, it's almost like there is... There is uh, <laughs> the aliens came out and they killed them. You know, it came up, right. crash landed or whatever, and they're gone. Right. right. Or they interbred and and they forgot about it or something. But that thing you mentioned, the thing about them, you know, the the figures in the mouth of a crocodile. Yeah. Which yeah. to me spoke of ships. That made me think. Yeah, it made me think of like jet fighters or something. Or right? something like you know, or organic ships, which was years ago. One of uh, in a comic book I read, and in a, like a DC comic book uh, about how aliens had uh, some you know someone traveled back in time and they found alien ships had come here long before life had been on the planet, and it was the spore of the organic ships left that they left behind that evolved into life, that it became mm-hmm. human. They're not human, but... That's the plot of that terrible Prometheus movie as well. Is that right? I'm, I haven't seen that, and I'm, I'm, I've been yeah. told never to bother. Don't bother. It's, well, it's I'd, I'd, I'd say if you, can, if you can see it with a big screen and beautiful sound... Oh, I'd yeah? say, um, I'd say it's worth looking at and listening to. the The plot is, the plot is broken. I mean, it's it it feels like the most expensive work of fan fiction ever made. Um, Absolutely. But oh. the but it looks gorgeous, and the sound is neat, and there's just some beautiful uh, scenes to look at. The uh, best part about that movie is is the auto bed. You know, the the uh, auto dock. Uh, yeah, that auto dock scene is <laughs> been described in many, many, many science fiction novels. Yep. And so, if you just take that in isolation and you say, "Okay, what's an auto dock?" That go. shows it, right? Oh, shows it. this is what you do. I like you put yourself in it, right? And does all the things a doctor does, including taking out a. Intruder, if you need to. I mean, ah, I like exactly. I like the descent of the ship. I like the interior of the of the alien. Uh, I like the alien planet. I just, yeah. You know, but I, it's, I, it's all stuff from you know the other movies. Oh, that, I know, I know. And and it's like, yeah, this is the thing that didn't need to be made because it was all implied. But the well, first yeah. one is such a work of art. Yeah. It is. Yeah, the and, first uh, one was just so brilliant, and the, and the, the 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 juxtaposition of like Ron Cobb's designs for the for the human technology, mm-hmm. and then Giger's insane nightmare, yep, alien artifacts. Ah, that movie. I was I was eleven years old when I saw that movie, and that I walked out because <laughs> well, I couldn't. Wait, take what, year it. Were you, what year were you born? Sixty uh, six, the year of ah. Star Trek and Batman. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, old man, I was born '67, and so I mean, I think I think I saw this at the same time, and just remember being. I remember the the promotional campaign being so mysterious. Just the picture of this egg. You have no yeah. idea what it was. Oh, no. this, this yeah, the commercial was terrifying. Just with that sort of that hollow, that oh, that that yeah. sound of whistling yeah. in space, and just the letters coming up as you see the ship. Oh, oh that, I, yeah, I, I walked out of it and I read the book. Yeah, you know, the Alan, Alan Dean Foster. Foster novelization, of course, and then he, he novel he did every novelization back then, and then yep. uh, and then went back a month later and, and steeled myself to sit through it and was just you know uh, that's still the, one uh, of my The Marvel comics. By the way, um, I, had the, I had the photo book version, and then the oh, I still have the the Archie Goodwin uh, Bill yeah. Sienkiewicz 
yeah. comic adaptation. That was great. That was Bill Sienkiewicz? Wow. I I'm, I'm pretty sure. Let me see. I, I think pretty, I got it. In... It's pretty coherent for him, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I had, years later, I had a girlfriend who loved the movie and was terrified of the alien. So I'm sorry. A, Excuse me. Walt Simonson. Okay. I was in the S folder. No, that's all right. <laughs> so I, but yeah. I, bought, I bought a uh, uh, six-foot-tall poster of the alien and uh, put it on the back door of her room. Oh. And so you know, she closed the door and saw it and just kind of fainted hard. <laughs> I still have that poster somewhere. <laughs> now, this, this story. Oh, yes. This, this story makes me um, really want to... Uh, read some recent alien invasion stories. Is there anything good that's come out in the past ten years along those lines? There's not that many that uh, are actually proper alien invasion. I mean, the last one we did was that 80s one with the elephants, with uh, Larry Niven and uh, Jerry Purnell. Footfall, right? Footfall, right. Which is basically a retelling of of the worlds. Um, uh, But yeah, they've got much better. Well, Niven uh, has pr- Protectors, an amazing book. If you guys haven't read that, it's not really oh, an alien, yeah. alien invasion story, but it has a lot of that sort of the feel of uh, uh, of the movie Alien. Oh, the that's, that's the one where uh, oh, I don't want to give away the denouement, but uh, uh, don't worry about it. But that's that's the one where we discover that uh, humans are just a stage and in yeah. in an alien. fantasized alien. That's right. right. That's right. Right, we're um, a larval stage, and and the and there's the nutrient that we don't have that that enables us to. It's it's very clever. And if yeah. you eat the, uh, I remember as a kid, tree of this, life, uh, food of tree of life, or food of life, yeah, and you yeah. can't resist it, and uh, yeah. and when you do, you gorge yourself on it, and it drives you to the next uh, stage. Now this this I, I mean I think one of the last ones I really liked was uh, Forge of God by Greg Bear, mm. which is this um, has this great opening scene where. Um, the, we detect the alien invasion because a geologist finds an extra mountain in the southwest desert of the U.S. <laughs> and isn't sure what it is and goes there and finds an alien. The mountain is a cloaked alien ship. Mm. And the first thing the alien says, the alien is, looks like a you know, pterodactyl or something. It sits up, turns to the human and says, I have bad news. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> what? Oh no! Bear, Bear's one of those thinker guys and it too. Goes, and it goes downhill from there. I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's a it's a giant um, epic, you know, planetary war story. And then the the sequel I finally read last year, which is really good. It's the uh, the surviving humans get vengeance on the uh, aliens who did the attack, and um, it's a weird book about. Uh, Kids that are uh, trained from birth to be these interstellar warriors. So, it, but it's not like um, Halo, or it's not like uh, 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 Heinlein or anything. They're reared by like Orson Scott Card. You no, know, and it's it's like Card, but um, more intelligent. I, I don't mean that to be so cruel. Um, the kids are reared, <laughs> in, but they're they're reared by robots, not by other humans. And uh, they don't fully understand what's happening. The uh, the kids are divided into two tribes, male and female, the Peters and the Wendy's. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the head of them is always called the Pan, and um, huh. and they're trained in the zero g zero g combat. Like at age twelve, they're learning astro uh, astrogation and you know how to think through three dimensional combat problems. Uh, and uh, I, I was really struck by it. It's actually a moving book that deals with questions of genocide and. More responsibility, and the the end of it is very moving. Sounds very much like the Orson Scott card stuff. 
but uh, you're saying but it's smarter. It doesn't piss me off so much. <laughs> what was the name of this book again? Uh, the first book is called Forge of God, and, oh, okay. uh, and the sequel is called Anvil of Stars. Okay. Forge of God was a huge hit. I mean, it was, a, I think, Hugo nominee and uh, got a lot of attention. It should have been filmed, because it really feels like that. But, um, Anvil of Stars didn't get much attention, but I thought it was really good. I'm going to check that out. I, I think I... Oh, God, it's been years. Uh, I think I read Sundiver and... Uh, oh, David Brin. That's Bryn. Oh, I'm so, okay. Bryn Bear. See, now, this is how I catalog everything alphabetically. So I hear you. I <laughs> don't forget be Benford, right? Benford, yeah. that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Benford Bear, I get confused all the time. Oh, right. oh it's, it's terrible. I also, you know, I used to work in a uh, science fiction bookstore, a uh, place called Forbidden Planet, you may know. Oh, um, yeah. And so, I, and I was in charge of the book department at one point. Oh, uh, oh, so it's like, so. you know, all the... I'm like all the B, the B's and C's are all like oh yeah all that oh, that's when I discovered Card and Bear and Brin and yep well they all sort of you know they they all meld into one in my mind yeah, but uh, Bradbury and you know oh that's, that's a good section that's a good section of law yeah, science fiction yeah. bookstores the B's I'd say I'm and I'm doing uh, what am I doing right now Glenn Cook I'm doing uh, the Starfisher series who's he's been around for a while and I this is the first time I've uh, I've encountered it. Is that black, part, part of the black company? Uh, I don't know. No. It's Mercs in space, and there's uh-huh. a, uh, the main character. One of the main characters is, uh, is he, he, in my mind, he's, he, he's uh, what was the, Jap- the Japanese cartoons? Uh, he's, he's like Captain Harlock. He's got long hair and an eye patch, <laughs> and he plays a clarinet, and it's just, it's, it's, it's hysterical. But, um, yeah, I'm. 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 I'm so. It's. It's. My job is is wonderful and terrible at the same time because I don't want to read. There's so much I'm missing out on. <laughs> you know, I'm just like I. Well, I'll get you back for another one that you do want to do. Please, oh, please do. I. I can't, guys. I. I'm gonna have to go myself, but I. I can't tell you how much fun this has been. I've made two new friends and. Uh, and it's just it's great to talk to people who are as enthusiastic about this stuff as as I am. Oh, right um, back at you, right back at you. I I, I really enjoyed uh, your reading, and I'm looking forward to hearing more of you. Oh, thank you, thank you. Please. Um, yeah, your your you, your biggest book probably in science fiction was the, that Anathem. I know that was a multi one, but that was your big SF book. Right? I you know I hate to tell you this, and this is one of the great disappointments of my career. I was hired to do that book. And they said, they said, we don't have time. We don't have a script for you. So you'll just come in and start reading it on Friday. And I was like, okay, great. I came in and they said, yeah, uh, we gave that book to Bill DeFries. But here, oh. you can read the, uh, the, the glossary. I'm like, really? Uh-oh. Really? And they, and, and Audible even put it up, you know, they had this thing like narrator's greatest hits and they, and they put that up as one of my greatest hits. I'm like, yeah, I, I read four pages in that book. Hey, <laughs> but, it's, but it's an important four pages. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I made it much clearer for everyone. But, uh, <laughs> what, what's the, what's the, other than that one, what's the, the, the science fiction or fantasy book that okay. is, Gateway. is one, we should go to gateway is that's my oh right of course gateway that's I knew that. like when i i wa- when oh. i started working at, at yeah when i started working at audible i i went in there one day and they had a stack of manuscripts on on the table that you know for for people to kind of similar up to this isn't it oh very well uh, gateway that's that is the thing was i i that was already one of my favorite books and i walked in there and i said oh please you can't let anyone do this i have to and they were like no this is you're doing this 
go ahead. I, I was thrilled, and I got to do the whole, the whole series. Um, I never, I never contacted Paul before he passed, uh, which I really regret. But apparently, he was, he really liked my work, and I, that to me was, uh, that was. I, I think I heard your audiobook version as the my first read of that. Um, and Paul, I mean th- that that book has these spheres, right? Mm-hmm. That are embedded in uh, is, is asteroids or some sort of other dimension. I can't remember. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's an asteroid. That's a, yeah, it looks like mushrooms, right? They're that's uh, right. That's right. Hemisphere and a and a cylinder. That's right. Now, and and then I I, I, I think terrifying books I've ever read in my life. Oh yeah. I think the most interesting part of that book is actually not that space stuff, but actually the he was really into. I, I don't know if Paul had like mental problems and he was always going to psychiatrists or whatever, but uh, there's a couple books like that where he's got like characters who are in therapy, and that's the that's the really cool part of the book for me is the we've got the, aspect. the yeah our 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 character who's flawed who's, yeah he's got some sort of panic attacks or what is it yeah oh yeah yeah. But the, the thing, and I think that's, it's, people are really divided on that book. I think it's one of the greatest works of science fiction, period. But a lot of people don't like it because he's an, he's, he's an anti-hero. He's not a great yeah, guy. He's an anti-hero. It's, and, a, it's a terrific book. It's a, I, I haven't heard your reading, uh, but now I will look for it. Because it's a, it's a book I'm very fond of. I read it when it came out, when it was serialized in Galaxy Magazine. Wow. Really? wow. A little art with it, too, which I've never seen anywhere since. Wow. Uh, oh, nice. But it, I think it's a, I think it's a heartbreaking story. It's funny. It's br- the, the idea, the conceit. It's just such a, a wild idea. Yeah. You hop in the ship and you have no idea where it's going to go. Maybe you'll a die. Lot. Maybe you'll come back rich. You know. Yeah. And it, it is much like uh, prospecting. You know, like the the. Exactly. It's very London-like now that I think about it. Exactly. <laughs> also, guys, if you just before I go, um, I did uh, I recorded Dagon. And put it up on my oh, my nice. SoundCloud uh, site. So just go to that. SoundCloud and search for. You know that's actually also like this. Story. Yes. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. Very well, we much. We we'll come back to Lovecraft again. Another one. And by the way, I think that's written slightly after this. Is that right? right? Yeah, it's 1920. Oh, that's right. Uh, that's right, because it was during the war. Yeah. Um. It's set. Yeah. It's set during World War Two or World War One. The evil U-boat uh, commander, right? Uh. No. That's um. That's a different one. Um, Dagon is about a, a guy's been. He's been also been. He was shot by that U-boat commander. His ship sank. Um, he was in a lifeboat and, and got away. Oh, that yeah. one. Yes, 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 yes. He's also, you know, he's in that same sort of. He's sick because he doesn't have enough water, and he wakes up, and the Earth has risen up out of the ocean. Yeah. Yep. And so some sort of continental shelf has lifted him up, and he's surrounded by muck, black muck from the bottom of the evil, evil ocean, and then he wanders and finds this giant statue, and then I think at the framing device for it is he's in his room uh, in some uh, port hotel, and he's about to blow out his brains because they're coming for him. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of standard Lovecraft, but um, it's, it's, it's an even more Lovecraftian version of this story with uh, the, the helmeted figures are alive and, and they've got cults going. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Well, 
I'm glad I'm not in charge because I have I have the opposite of the Fonz powers when it comes to technology. Oh. I'm the guy that like I'm I'm a hardcore gamer. And yeah. for years, whenever we had LAN parties, it would always be my machine. I'm always the one like, oh yeah, sorry, there's a problem with my video card. Oh sorry, uh, not, uh, I need to fix my network card. Sorry. <laughs> this is this is worse because you know there you're just missing out on games here. We've been prepping for a whole week. <laughs> Ollie, have you have you played Destiny yet? Uh, I have not. I have not. Which remind me, which is Destiny? Oh, um, it's, the, it's the new new thing from Bungie. It's a uh, interstellar adventure. Uh, it's for the Xbox. Um, and it's a new uh, Bungie game, and I'm not aware of this, dude. Yep. I, need to get, I need to get on this. Yep. yep. The trailer looks pretty good. I'm, I, I I will admit I have become, and it's I I feel shamed because I I have no friends who are into this with me, but I got totally sucked into Hearthstone, the huh. uh, Blizzard card game. And that's never been a... Th- I never got into magic or any of that. <laughs> never did the card thing. I, I did World of Warcraft for a long time, and I think that might be what's so appealing, but it's it's also... I, 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 I can't take the Twitch games anymore. I'm not fast enough. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't come. I used to play Diablo with uh, some buddies every Monday. And You're getting get- old. You're getting yeah. old. <laughs> you have children, man. It, it knocks you back a peg. I'm t- All my I, students I, I are addicted to card. League of Legends, you guys heard of that game? Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, it seems to be like it's designed to extra- extract as much money as possible yep. from yep. from little kids, and it does it by being free. Yeah. <laughs> they managed to make it so that every 7-Eleven or corner store has uh, these cards where you can go in and buy things, and they end up going in with $50 and going back three times a week. It's like... This is this is a license to steal money. Yeah, it's insidious. It really is. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I don't see the appeal, but uh, I'm kind of glad I don't. It's it's you know it's just a it's just a good way to get your dopamine fix. That's all. I think that's it. Yeah. I mean, you do get high when when I'm playing Battlefield Four and I jump out of a helicopter with a rocket and you know kill a bunch of guys and then steal their helicopter and fly up into the top of a building and then the building starts collapsing and I parachute <laughs> off of that and then come down and plant a, uh, you know, spawn beacon and then I, I get killed. I'm still like, yeah, even though I'm dead. <laughs> it's just the most amazing. What platform treatment. do you play on? That's PC. Oh, really? Okay. 64 players. It can't go down to 32. That's in, that's impossible. You can't go down once you've gone up. I, I have it for Xbox One and... Uh... I, I, my machine is, you know, my PC is a little, little long in the tooth, so I wanted to have it on the, you know, best process. Once you go 64 player, you can't go back down. It doesn't. I thought. It, I think it does 64 on the Xbox One. Well, that's uh, that's wasn't the case for Battlefield 3 for the. Oh no, years. definitely not. No, I know that. It was 32 and 32. That's not. I mean, that's not even a Battlefield. That's that's just a room full of guys shooting each other. Right? <laughs> have you, have but, you guys seen that uh, YouTube series Battlefield Friends? No, I think so. Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's pretty. Funny. It's uh, uses. It's like what, what do they call that? Anim- machinima. Machinima. Yeah, machinima, and then. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's about a few guys and they're they're playing, and then one of them is extremely stupid. He's the <laughs> noob, and he's totally destructive. But I don't want to spoil it for you. <laughs> no, it's, I, I think I've seen it. It's it. I think that uses. Oh, maybe they've got Battlefield Four in there as well. But um, the thing is, is on the latest one, 
um, they, they're doing something I, that I hate, which is the, the next iteration, you know, the next download, download or whatever it is, what do they call it? Battle pack or whatever it's called. It, it's showing like futuristic technology. And I know some of it's already futuristic, like that they've got, uh, like for example, they've got that aircraft that they've had theoretically in service for a long time, but actually doesn't fly. That's a, <laughs> The air, what's the big airplane? The, the Joint Strike Fighter. Yeah, you know that's been the game for years, but they uh, they don't actually fly those in real life, right? They right. they have them, but they just don't fly them. They, they suck. Don't work. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, well, in this latest one, they've like got a hover tank, and I'm like, what? No, uh, no, uh, you can't have hover tanks because uh, w- Cabarite doesn't exist in our <laughs> world, <laughs> idiots. But that's that's the way Call of Duty went, right? They went yeah. down future technology what is the other one and i just it doesn't appeal to me at all there has to be some grounding in in reality uh even like even in fallout right they've got yeah they've got it it's sort of 50s yeah right 1950s so you run around with like a winchester and also a laser gun so there's some sort of grounding in it and that so i'm I'm getting worried i'm all about that i'm a history game Guy, so I'm, you know, I'm still playing Napoleon Total War, so <laughs> you know, I'm a stickler. It's got to be real. Yeah, it has to be right. Brian, let I me mean, ask you something. I, I have a friend who's uh, an artist, and she's um, she's actually the granddaughter or the great granddaughter of one of the generals in the Battle of Galicia uh, in World War One, which I guess was huh. the first armored battle. If, if, I mean, I guess it was a whole bunch of armored divisions. I don't know. World War One. I, I don't know anything. World War Two. I know a little bit more about. But uh, she was wondering. <clears throat> she wanted to play a game. She try to reenact her grandfather's mm. experience, and we got a tabletop game that I was. I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I have. I. I don't. <laughs> I can't figure this out. It's just twenty page rule book. I got. Oh, which I one? got stuff to do. Um, Oh, jinkies. It was two battles. It was like a tub- double-sided map, and it was the first two big battles of World War One. I. I can't remember the name. You know, the Battle of Marne and Tannenberg? Mm, no, it was Galicia and the... Uh, I can't remember what the other battle was. I was I was in the middle. I was doing a Shakespeare play, and I had all kinds of things going on. I was like, I can't get my head around this. Oh, I'd, I'd love to have helped. That's on It's almost nothing. Um, there isn't. Yeah, that's the thing. I was hoping that there might have been something like Rome Total War or, you know. Yeah, no. no what about World of Tanks? Does that have World War One or is it all World War II? It's mostly World War II. There, there's, a fun, there's a fun game with a neat idea called um, Toy Soldiers. Um, and it's, uh, the conceit is you're playing with a kid's toy box, but it's a first-person shooter slash low-level operations thing. So wow. the, it's, it's really clever. It's for the Xbox. It's cheap. It's like 10 bucks. Um, and you get all kinds of World War One vehicles from fighters to tanks to troops, and they did a uh, a sequel um, for Cold War 1980s technology, which is also fun. Huh. Um, but that's the that's the only. It's not. It, it gets the idea across, but you can't simulate the specific large scale battle. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it's it, there are there are a lot of board uh, board games uh, that came out, um, and you can find if you go to Board Game Geek. Dot com, you can find a whole bunch of these, um, and some of them are less complicated than the one you're talking about. Gotcha. Uh, but it's uh, it's underserved. Um, are are you a big tabletop game? I used to be. Yeah, I used to be. I have yeah. a friend who just got. He just started a, a company a couple of years back, and 
they're they just went to Gen Con to uh-huh. tout their their new game. Oh, what's it called? Quartermaster General. Hmm. Uh, it's uh, World War Two, all about supply lines and. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, those, those can be really fun. Those weird sort of very niche uh, things, like it, it, it's like, well, I'm not actually shooting anybody. No, but those those trucks need to get through. Right? <laughs> That's the most important thing. There's a movie uh, I think it's called the Red Ball Express. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, uh, it's about uh, the black soldiers delivering um, supplies to the white soldiers, huh. and you know even though it's a terrible duty that they don't get any honor, it's still, you know, if, if those guys don't get the supplies, the front falls down. It's, it's, it's kind of a weird movie in that respect. Huh. Just to, just to clarify the, um, the battle of Galicia is, uh, on the, on the Eastern front, uh, Russia fought against the Germans and against the Austro Hungarians and the, against the Austrians, the first, uh, major battle was the battle of Galicia where the Russians just plowed into Austria, Hungary um, at the same time, north of that was the Battle of Tannenberg, which was an extraordinary battle, taught all oh, really? the time, uh, where this tiny German force, commanded by Ludendorff and Hindenburg, um, defeated a Russian force ten times its size. Uh, mm. Spectacular, spectacular defeat. Russian commander shot himself in the head afterwards. Um, wow. I mean, it was one of the most decisive battles of history, because if it had gone the other way, Russia would easily have run over uh, Germany and gone right to Berlin. No uh, kidding. Or one would have gone the other way. The first tank battle is uh, the Battle of Cambrai on the Western Front, um, and that's a really interesting battle. When the tanks broke through the German line, the British troops didn't know what to do. They'd never experienced a breakthrough before, so they just sat there like, "Wow, oh, I guess should we go through? I don't know." <laughs> Most of the tanks broke down. Ah, it's it's fascinating stuff. Um, wow, no, it's amazing that- how you know technology is, you know, like. Like, you guys know where that, that word tank comes from? No. It's so amazing it, because we always think of tanks as like they're a big thing that holds, you know, water or something. And that's actually what the – it was a code word. Yes. Um, they're developing a technology, right? And it's called a tank. Well, that doesn't tell you anything until you know what a tank is, yeah, right? It, yeah. So it was like, well, it's going to bring water to the troops or something because like, they have right. do- trouble delivering – Right, but actually, it's this thing that H.G. Wells talked about—basically, a land uh, train yep. that has cannons all over it. Right? It's like, oh shit! And now, of course, the word tank doesn't mean most. Mostly, when people think of tank, they either think water tank on the back of your toilet, or they uh, think of a tank. Think of the, what did Wells call them? The land ironclads, right? Yeah, the iron land, land iron. It's not much of a story, although it's very interesting. In the uh, summer of 1914, he published a uh, rule book for miniatures conflict, uh, right. tabletop warfare, called Little... He invented it. Yep. Well, Wells? Yes. Pretty yep. much. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Terrible timing, too. Just like two months before World War I. <laughs> he said, well, let's have fun with war. Yeah, it didn't go really well. But, it's, uh, <laughs> but again, you can still download it and, uh, and play it. They're pretty good rules. <gasps> I didn't yeah, know there's that. There's a picture of him like uh, lying on the floor playing with the... The toy tanks and not toy tanks, but toy soldiers and yeah. and he's got all these rules for cap and artillery. Yep. Yeah, uh, yeah. Time machine is still one of my favorite stories and favorite movies of all time. That was you know very very precious to me as a kid. And uh, time travel was the George was that, Powell one. Yeah. 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 Oh God, that's right. I forgot they made a remake. I've never seen it. No, I haven't either. I don't. I don't want to. It's pretty bad. Yeah, and it didn't Wells 
grandson have something to do with it, or? Yeah, a little descriptive or something. But you thing. know what? Everybody, everybody talks about the you know sort of the big three. But he, this guy, wrote some amazing short stories that nobody reads, like the door in the wall. Oh my God, what an amazing story! Oh yeah. I, I mean, Oops. you read that thing, you say this can't be written by H.G. Wells. It's it's like a fantasy by C.S. Lewis or something. Really? Or the star. Or the st- oh, there's another good one. Uh, that's that's basically the story of the destruction of the earth, right? Or yeah. near destruction of the earth. Yeah. Or the crystal and egg. I mean, a crystal egg. Yeah, I, that's okay. But there's so many of them like that, right? Oh. That like, you, and he wrote like ghost story, funny ghost stories. Yeah. He wrote serious ghost stories. Well, we did one, right? Yeah. And and the thing is, is they sort of get you know people say you know Jules Verne, they think three books. <laughs> the, the you know H.G. Wells three books, but there's there's tons like these guys were writing for many many years. And on top and of they, that, on top of that, yeah. he wrote that uh, history book, uh, mm-hmm. Study of History, which yeah. became um, one of the best selling books in America for about. Oh, 20 that's years. right. I mean, yeah. extraordinary man, extraordinary man. 